Our Island Story, Chapter Twenty Eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall, Chapter Twenty Eight. Henry the First, the Story of the White Ship. William the Red died in 1100 A.D. He had no children, so his brother Henry became king after him. Henry was the youngest son of William the Conqueror. He was fond of learning, and could read and write better than most people in those days, so he was called Beauclerc, which is French, and means fine scholar. Henry's eldest brother, Robert, Duke of Normandy, was still alive, and the Norman barons in England still wanted to have him for their king. So they sent over to France, and asked Robert to come to fight again for the crown. Once more the English people had to choose between the Norman king and the Norman barons. Once more they decided for the king and fought for him, even although William the Red had forgotten his promises, and cruelly deceived them. For although Henry's father and mother had been Norman, Henry himself had been born in England, and the English people felt as if that almost made him English. So once more they chose to fight for the king against the barons. Henry Beauclerc did not repay the people with promises only, as his brother had done. He gave them a written letter, or charter, as it was called, in which he promised to do away with many of William the Red's cruel laws, to restore the good laws of Edward, and to lessen the power of the barons. Later on another king gave the people a much more important charter, but in the meantime the English were very glad to get this one. Besides giving them this charter, Henry pleased the English very much by marrying the Scottish princess Maud, or Matilda, as she was sometimes called. Edgar the Etheling had a sister named Margaret. She married the Scottish king Malcolm III, and this princess Maud was their daughter, and the great-granddaughter of Edmund Ironside. When Henry married her, and she became Queen of England, the English felt that the crown had come back again to their own people, and they were very glad. But the Norman nobles were angry about it. They thought Henry ought to have married a Norman lady. Although many of the nobles were angry, Henry's marriage did a great deal of good, for other Normans followed the king's example, and married English ladies, so that the hatred between the two races began to disappear a little. Thus it happened that when Robert and his barons came to fight Henry, they were met by an army of English, whose hearts were with their king, and who nowise feared the Normans. So hopeless did Robert feel it to be that he made peace with his brother, and went back to Normandy without fighting. Then Henry punished the rebel barons by taking their lands away from many of them, and banishing others. The English helped him, and rejoiced at the defeat of the proud barons. Later on Robert and Henry quarrelled again. Henry sailed over to Normandy with an army of English soldiers, defeated his brother, and took possession of Normandy. So now instead of England belonging to Normandy, Normandy belonged to England. 
When Henry had been king for about twenty years, a great and terrible grief came upon him. He and his son, Prince William, had been in Normandy together. Just as they were ready to return to England, a sailor came, and begged Henry to honour him by using his ship. "'My father Stephen,' he said, "'steered the ship in which your father sailed over to England when he went to conquer Harold. My father was a good sailor, and he served King William until he died.' I, too, am a sailor like my father. I have a beautiful boat called the White Ship. It is newly rigged and freshly painted. It is manned by fifty trusty sailors, and is in every way worthy of a king. Honour me, as your father honoured my father, and give me leave to steer you to England. I thank you, good master Fitzstephen, said Henry but I have already made choice of the ship in which I intend to sail, and I cannot change. But, he added, seeing the man looked disappointed, my son, Prince William, is with me, and you may steer him and his company over the channel. Thomas Fitzstephen was very glad when he heard that, and he hurried away to tell his sailors to prepare to receive the prince. Late in the afternoon King Henry set sail, leaving Prince William to follow in the white ship. But Prince William was young and gay, and he did not feel inclined to start at once. He stayed on shore, drinking and feasting, and making merry with his friends. When at last he did go on board, he ordered the captain to give the sailors three barrels of good red wine with which to drink his health. So there was still further delay. As was usual in those days, priests came to bless the ship before it started, but the prince and his gay companions laughed at them, and the sailors, whom the wine had made merry, chased them away. One of the king's friends, who had been left behind with the prince, now urged the captain to start. "'Oh, there is no hurry,' said Fitzstephen. "'My beautiful white ship has sails like the wings of a bird. She skims over the water swifter than a swallow. We can easily overtake the king and be in England before him.' At last they started. The deck was crowded with fine ladies and gay gentlemen. These ladies and gentlemen had many servants, so that, together with the sailors, there were about three hundred people on board the ship. The sails were set, the sailors bent to the oars, and to the sound of song and laughter the gay ship left the harbour, skimming over the waves like a beautiful bird, as the captain had said. It was a clear and frosty winter's evening. The red sun had sunk, and a silver moon shone brightly. All was merriment and laughter when, suddenly, there was an awful crash. The ship seemed to shiver from end to end, and then stand still. The next minute it began to sink. It had struck upon a rock. One fearful wail of agony rose from the hearts of three hundred people, breaking the stillness of the night. Far away over the sea Henry heard that cry. "'What is it?' he asked, straining anxious eyes through the darkness. "'Only some night-bird, sire,' replied the captain. "'Methought it was some soul in distress,' said Henry, still looking back over the sea, anxious he knew not why. On the white ship all was terrible confusion. Without losing a moment, Fitzstephen thrust the prince into the only small boat, and bade the sailors row off. 
he at least must be saved, though all the rest should perish. The prince, hardly knowing what had happened, allowed the sailors to row away from the sinking vessel. But suddenly a voice called to him, Ah, William, William, do you leave me to perish? It was the voice of his sister, Marie. William was careless and selfish, but he loved his sister. He could not leave her. Go back, he said to the sailors, go back, we must take my sister too. We dare not, sire, replied the boatman, we dare not, we must go on. You dare not, cried the prince. Am I not the son of the King of England? Obey me. The prince spoke so sternly that the men turned the boat and went back to the sinking ship. As the boat drew near, the princess Marie, with a cry of joy, leaped into her brother's arm. But alas, many others, eager to be saved, crowded into the little boat. The sailors tried in vain to keep them back. The little boat was overturned. And the prince was drowned. The white ship sank fast until only the mast was seen above the water. Clinging to it were two men, all that were left of that gay company. One of these men was a noble called Geoffrey de Lagle, the other was a poor butcher of Rouen called Berthold. As they clung there, a third man appeared swimming through the waves. It was the captain. Fitzstephen. What of the prince? he asked. The prince is drowned, replied Geoffrey. Ah, woe is me! cried Fitzstephen, and throwing up his arms, he sank. Hour after hour the two men clung to the mast. They were numbed with cold and perishing from hunger. Again and again, as long as they had strength, they called aloud for help. But there was no one to hear. The bright stars twinkled overhead, and the moon shone calmly, making paths of shining silver over the still water. But no voice answered their cries. All through the terrible long night, the noble and the butcher talked and tried to comfort each other. But towards morning, the noble became exhausted. Goodbye, friend, he whispered to Berthold. God keep you. I can hold out no longer. Then he slipped into the water, and Berthold was left alone. When the wintry sun rose, Berthold, faint and benumbed, was still clinging to the mast. He was the poorest of all those who had sailed in the beautiful white ship. While the others had been dressed in silk and satin and velvet, his coat was of sheepskin, and perhaps that helped to save him, for the rough skin kept out the cold and wet. Far better than a coat of satin could have done. It was beginning to grow light when three fishermen, passing in their boat, caught sight of something floating in the water. They rowed near to see what it was, and found the poor butcher almost dead from cold and hunger. The fishermen lifted him into their boat and took him home. When they had warmed and fed him, and he could speak again, he told his dreadful story. Alas, what news to carry to England! There was mourning and tears among the nobles when they heard it, for almost every one among them had lost a son or a brother. But who should tell the king? No one dared. The nobles knew that Henry loved his son above everything on earth, 
so for three days, in spite of his anxious questions, no one dared to tell him the truth. When alone they wept for their dear ones, but in presence of the king they put away their tears and tried to smile and jest as usual. At last one of the nobles, taking his little son by the hand, and whispering to him, Go, tell the king, gently pushed the child into the room where Henry was sitting. The little boy felt frightened and shy at finding himself alone with the stern king, although he hardly understood how terrible a tale he had to tell. Half sobbing with excitement and fear, he knelt before Henry, and stammered out the story. As Henry listened, his hands clutched his robe, his lips moved, but no sound came. Then suddenly he fell senseless to the floor, and the little boy, now quite frightened, burst into loud sobbing. At the sound of the fall the nobles rushed into the room. They lifted the king and placed him upon a couch. He lay there with white face and closed eyes. When he opened his eyes again there was a look in them that no one had seen before. His face was lined and drawn with sorrow, and no one ever saw him smile again. Henry had no other son, but he had a daughter, who was called Matilda, as her mother had been. He resolved that this daughter should be queen after he was dead. In those days it was thought strange for a country to be ruled by a woman, and the haughty Norman nobles hated the thought of it. But Henry was so strong and stern that he forced them to promise that Matilda should be queen. How they kept that promise you shall hear. After Prince William's death Henry spent a great deal of his time in Normandy. He was there when he died. It is said that his death was caused by eating too many lampreys. Lampreys are fish, something like eels. Henry was very fierce and stern, but he was wise, and in those days it was necessary for a king to be stern in order to keep the strong barons in check. He loved justice so much that he was called the Lion of Justice. He took the side of the English people against the Norman barons, and the English repaid him by being true to him. We read of Henry that good he was, and mickle awe was of him. No man durst mid so with other in his day. Peace he made for man and dear. Peace he made, and peace he loved, so that he was called the peace loving king. Kneeling beside King Henry, as he lay dying, the Archbishop of Rouen prayed, God give him the peace he loved. End of chapter 28 Read by Kara Schallenberg on June 17, 2006 in Oceanside, California Our Island Story Chapter 29 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 29 The Story of King Stephen. Henry I died in 1135 A.D., 
and the barons, instead of keeping their promise to him and making his daughter queen, chose his nephew Stephen to be their king. Stephen was the son of Adela, William the Conqueror's daughter. The barons chose Stephen for several reasons. They were so proud that they hated the thought of being ruled by a woman, and that woman, too, not even a Norman. For you remember Matilda's mother was a great-granddaughter of Edmund Ironside, and, as she had been born in England, and lived a great part of her life there, she was far more English than Norman. Matilda's husband was Geoffrey, Count of Anjou. He was also called Geoffrey Plantagenet, because when he went into battle he used to wear a sprig of yellow broom in his helmet, so that his friends might know him when his face was covered with his visor. The Latin name for broom is Planta Genista, and, gradually, it came to be pronounced Plantagenet. Although Geoffrey was French, he was not a Norman, and the Normans looked upon him as quite as much a stranger as an Englishman, and they did not wish to be ruled by him, as would happen if his wife Matilda were made queen. Besides this, the barons knew that Stephen was kind and gentle, and they thought he would be a king who would allow them to do just what they liked. And so he did. Stephen was too gentle to rule the wild barons. Someone stern and harsh was needed to keep them in check, and Stephen was neither. He allowed the barons to build strong castles all over the country. These castles had dark and fearful dungeons, which were used as prisons. There such deeds of cruelty were done by the barons that the people said the castles were filled, not with men, but with evil spirits. "'God has forgotten England,' they said. "'Christ sleeps, and his holy ones.' Not even at the time of the conquest had there been such misery in England. Then there had been one stern ruler who had forced every one to bend to his will. Now each baron set himself up as a king and tyrant. His castle was his kingdom, where he tortured and killed, according to his own wicked will. Stephen was a courteous knight and gentleman, but during the nineteen years of his reign there was only lawlessness and sorrow in England. When the barons made Stephen king of England, Matilda and her husband Geoffrey fled to Normandy. But there, too, the barons rebelled against them, and chose Stephen for their duke. Then David, the king of Scotland, gathered an army, and came to fight for his niece Matilda. Ever since the days of the Romans, the Scots and English had been enemies, and the Scots were still almost as fierce and wild as they had been then. They marched through England as far as Yorkshire, doing dreadful deeds of cruelty as they went. At a place called Northallerton a great battle was fought. It was called the Battle of the Standard, because the sacred banners of four saints were hung upon a pole, which was fixed to a cart, and round this the English gathered their forces. The Scots were fiercely brave, but they wore no armour, and, although they rushed to battle with splendid courage, they could not break through the line of steel-clad Normans, nor stand against the arrows of the English. So they were defeated, and David could not help Matilda as he had meant to do. Later on Matilda came back from France, and, until the death of Stephen, England was filled with civil war. 
Civil war means war within a country itself, the people of that country, instead of fighting against a foreign nation, fighting among themselves. This is the most terrible kind of war, for often friends and brothers fight on different sides, killing and wounding each other. In this civil war those who wished Matilda to be queen fought against those who wished Stephen to remain king. For a time Matilda's army was successful, but she was so proud and haughty that she soon made enemies, even of those who had at first fought for her. Then came a time when she was shut up in Oxford, while the army of Stephen lay around. The king's soldiers kept so strict a watch that no food could be taken into the town, and no person could escape from it. This is called a siege. The people in Oxford began to starve, for they had eaten up all the food they had, and Stephen's soldiers took good care that no more was allowed to be taken into the town. It was the middle of winter. The river Thames was frozen over. Snow lay everywhere around. The cold was terrible, and the people had no wood for fires. At last Matilda could bear it no longer. She made up her mind to run away. One night four figures dressed in white crept silently through the streets of Oxford. They reached the gate. In silence it was opened, for those guarding it knew who the white-clad figures were. One by one the figures passed through. Out into the snow-covered fields they crept, moving softly and swiftly unnoticed by Stephen's soldiers. It was Matilda and three faithful knights. They had dressed themselves in white, so that they might pass unseen over the snow. There was no bridge over the river, but the frost was so hard that they crossed upon the ice, and so got safely away. Although Matilda fled, the war still went on, until at length her son Henry landed in England, determined to fight for the crown. But Stephen was weary of war, and all the land longed for rest. So, listening to the advice of a wise priest, Stephen and Henry made peace. Their first meeting was on the banks of the Thames, where it runs still as a little stream. They stood one on one bank and one on the other. Stephen, a broken, ruined man, worn and aged with wars and troubles. Henry, young, handsome, and hopeful. And there they made a treaty called the Peace of Wallingford. By this treaty it was agreed that Stephen should keep the crown while he lived, that he should acknowledge Henry as his adopted son, that Henry should reign after the death of Stephen, and that the dreadful castles which Stephen had allowed the wicked barons to build, and which they used as dark and horrible prisons, should be destroyed. So the land had rest. Soon afterward Stephen died, and, in 1154 A.D., Henry came to the throne amid the great rejoicing of the people. End of chapter 29 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On June 17, 2006 In Oceanside, California Our Island Story, Chapter 30 This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 30. Henry Plantagenet. The Story of Gilbert and Rohesia. Henry the Second, as you know, got his name Plantagenet from his father, Geoffrey of Anjou, who used to wear a piece of Plantagenista in his helmet. He was the first of several kings ruling England who were all Plantagenets. Henry the Second was only twenty-one years old when he began to reign, and, like his grandfather, Henry Beauclerc, he reigned thirty-five years. Like him, too, he did much to draw the English and Norman people together. The misrule and confusion of the reign of Stephen had been so great that Henry had to work very hard to bring his kingdom into order again. He not only worked hard himself, but he made other people work, too. It is said of him that he never sat down, but was on his feet all day long. The first thing Henry did was to send away all the foreign soldiers who had come to England, to help Stephen and Matilda in their wars. Next he made the barons pull down their castles in which they used to do such dreadful deeds of cruelty. He told them they must live in ordinary houses, and not in fortresses which could be turned into fearful prisons and places of torture. The barons were very angry, but, like his grandfather, Henry Beauclerc, Henry the Second was stern, and forced people to obey him. These are only a few of the things which he did, for the reign of Henry the Second was a great one. To help and advise him in his work, Henry chose a man called Thomas a Becket. Thomas a Becket's father was called Gilbert, and his mother Rohesia. Gilbert was a London merchant, and when he was young he had made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, as was common in those days. At that time Jerusalem was in the hands of people called Saracens. They were pagans, and hated the Christians, and they treated very badly those who came to visit the sepulchre of Christ. While Gilbert was on his pilgrimage, a rich Saracen seized and put him in prison, saying he should not come out until he had paid a great sum of money. This Saracen had a beautiful daughter, Rohesia, for that was her name, had seen the handsome young Englishman before her father put him in prison, and she felt sorry for him. She used to come to the little window of his cell to speak to him, and to bring him things to eat and drink. Night after night she came, and they whispered to each other through the bars of the little prison window. There was no one to hear, and only the stars and the moon to keep watch. All day long Gilbert used to wait impatiently until night came, when Rohesia would creep quietly to the window, and he would hear her whisper, "'Gilbert! Gilbert!' and she would slip her little hand through the bars, and touch his. Rohesia could speak no English, but Gilbert could speak her language, and he taught her to say his name. She learned to say, "'London,' too, and knew that that was where he lived." Gilbert and Rohesia grew to love each other very much, and all the day seemed long and dreary, until night came, and they could whisper to each other through the prison bars. But one night Rohesia came breathless and pale. "'Gilbert!' she whispered. "'Gilbert, my father is asleep, and I have stolen the keys. I will unlock the door. 
You are free.' Gilbert hardly believed the good news until he heard the key turn in the lock. Then the door swung open, and he knew that he was indeed free. He took Rohesia in his arms and kissed her, promising that he would never forget her. "'As soon as I get back to England I shall send for you,' he said. "'You must come to me, and we shall be married and never part any more.' Then Gilbert went away, and Rohesia was left all alone. She felt very sad after he had gone, but she comforted herself always, by remembering that he was going to send for her, and that then they should be together, and happy ever after. Gilbert arrived safely in England, but he forgot all about the beautiful Saracen maiden and his promise to her. He had so many things to do when he got back to London that the time for him went very quickly. But for Rohesia the time passed slowly, slowly. Day after day went. In the morning she said, "'Today he will send.' In the evening she wept and said, "'He has not sent.' At last she could bear the waiting no longer, so she set out to try to find Gilbert. She knew only two words of English, but she was not afraid. She travelled all through the land until she reached the seashore. There she said, "'London! London!' to every one whom she met, until at last she found a ship that was going there. She had not much money, but she gave the captain some of her jewels, and he was kind to her, and landed her safely in London." London in those days was much smaller than it is now, but Rohesia had never seen so many houses and people before, and she was bewildered and frightened. Every one turned to stare at the lovely lady dressed in such strange and beautiful clothes, who kept calling, "'Gilbert! Gilbert!' as she passed from street to street. Gilbert was sitting in his house when suddenly he heard his name. He knew the voice— yet he could hardly believe his ears. Could it indeed be Rohesia? In a flash he remembered everything—the dark little prison, the lovely Saracen girl, his love for, his promise to her. He ran to the door and opened it quickly. The next minute Rohesia was sobbing in his arms. Her long journey was ended. She had found Gilbert. As Gilbert held Rohesia in his arms, he found all his old love for her had come back. So they were married and were happy. They had a little son whom they called Thomas. He grew up to be that Thomas a Becket, who was King Henry's great chancellor and friend. I must tell that some people say that this story of Gilbert and Rohesia is only a fairy tale. Perhaps it is. End of chapter 30. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. On June 19, 2006. In Oceanside, California. Our Island Story. Chapter 31. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 31. Henry Plantagenet. The Story of Thomas A. Becket. King Henry was very fond of Thomas A. Becket. 
They used to work very seriously, but when work was done they would play together like two boys. The Chancellor took care of the King's great seal, looked after the royal chapel, and had many other duties. He was a very important person, lived in splendid style, and dressed magnificently. In fact, his house and servants were richer and grander than those of the King. Many of the nobles sent their sons to serve in the Chancellor's house, and the proudest were glad to wait on him, and to try to please him. Every day a great number of people dined with the Chancellor. Sometimes the King would come in from riding, in the middle of dinner, jump over the table with a merry jest, and sit down among the guests. Many stories are told of the fun the King and the Chancellor used to have together. One day, while out riding, Thomas and King Henry met an old beggar, shivering and in rags. "'It would be a good action to give that poor man a coat,' said the King. "'It would indeed,' replied the Chancellor. "'Then give him yours,' and the King laughingly seized the cloak which Thomas was wearing. It was a beautiful new cloak of silk and fur, and Thomas did not wish to lose it, so he held it tight, while the King tugged hard to pull it off. Neither would let go until, between struggling and laughing, they both nearly fell off their horses. The courtiers watched and laughed too, but at last the King succeeded in getting the cloak and flung it to the beggar. Thomas was not very pleased, but he had to make the best of it, and go shivering for the rest of his ride. The poor beggar went away greatly delighted with the king's joke. Once Henry sent Thomas with a message to the king of France. Thomas took so many soldiers and servants in glittering dress, so many horses and carriages with him, that the people came out of their houses to stare at him wherever he passed. "'Who is it?' everyone asked. "'The Chancellor of England,' was the reply. "'Only the Chancellor?' cried the astonished people. "'What must the King be, if the Chancellor is so grand?' Henry worked hard, and with the help of his Chancellor improved many things in England. He found that the Church and the clergy, like everything else, had grown very unruly and disorderly. He determined to put them in order, and Thomas a Becket, he thought, would be the best man to help him. Thomas had been brought up as a priest, and King Henry resolved to make him Archbishop of Canterbury, and head of all the clergy in England. But Thomas was gay and worldly. He loved fine clothes and rich food. "'I do not want to be Archbishop of Canterbury,' he said to the king. "'You must be,' said the king. "'Then we shall quarrel,' said Thomas. "'Why?' said the king. "'Because if you make head of the church, I shall work for the church and not for you. We shall no longer be friends but enemies.' replied Thomas. But King Henry did not believe Thomas when he talked like this, and, in spite of all he could say, he made him Archbishop of Canterbury. As soon as he became Archbishop, Thomas changed his way of living. He gave up his fine house and fine clothes, and his great number of servants. He began to wear coarse, rough clothes, lived in a little narrow cell, ate very plain food, and drank only water. It is difficult to understand why he did this. Perhaps he thought that the primate of all England, as the Archbishop of Canterbury is called, ought to be a very holy man, and he knew no other way of becoming holy, 
for in those days if a man fasted and went barefoot and wore coarse clothing, it was thought that he must be a saint. Thomas now wrote to the king and told him that he must find another chancellor, as he could not be archbishop and chancellor too. This was a great surprise and grief to the king. In those days it was nothing unusual for one man to be archbishop as well as chancellor. Henry had expected Thomas still to be chancellor and still to help him. He had merely made him primate so that he should help him more. But that was only the beginning of the troubles. The bishop of Rome, whom we call the Pope, said that he was the head of the whole Christian church, and that no one could be made a bishop in England without his consent. Henry said that he, the king, was the head of the English church, and he would make what bishops he chose. Thomas, instead of siding with the king, sided with the Pope, so they quarrelled, as Thomas had warned Henry that they would. In those days some of the clergy had grown very wicked. Instead of leading good lives and being an example to others, they led bad lives. Priests and clergy who did wicked things were not judged by the same courts as other people. They were judged by a bishop's court. Now a bishop's court had no power to order any very severe punishment. If a priest killed a man, the worst that could happen to him would be that he would be beaten, not very hard, and have only bread and water to live on for a few days. Many wicked people became priests simply that they might be able to do as much wrong as they liked, without being punished for it. Henry wished to put an end to this, so he said that all people who did wrong must be tried by the same judges, whether they were priests or not. But Thomas a Becket would not agree. Clergymen had always been judged by a bishop's court, he said, and by a bishop's court they should continue to be judged. So the king and the primate quarrelled worse than ever, till the quarrel grew so fierce, and the king so angry, that Thomas fled over the sea to escape from him. After a time Henry forgave Thomas, and he came back to England, but almost at once he again began to quarrel with the king. This time Henry lost all patience, and in a burst of anger he exclaimed, "'Are there none of the idle people who eat my bread, that will free me from this quarrelsome priest?' Henry was angry, and did not really mean what he said, but four knights heard, and, thinking to please their king, they took ship, for Henry was in Normandy at this time, crossed the sea to England, and rode to Canterbury. Arrived there, they went to the archbishop's house. They found him almost alone. With angry words they told him that he must either promise not to quarrel with Henry, or he must leave England. I shall do what I think is right, replied Thomas. If the king tells me to do things which I think are wrong, I will not obey him. I am the servant of God. God is higher than the king. I shall obey him. This answer enraged the knights, and more angry words were spoken. Then they went away, telling Thomas to beware, for they would come again. You will find me here, replied Thomas proudly. Never again will I forsake my people. All the archbishop's friends, and the monks and priests who lived with him, were very much afraid. They felt sure that these angry knights meant to do something dreadful. They begged Thomas to leave his house and take refuge in the cathedral, but he would not. 
I said they would find me here, he replied to all entreaties. The day passed. The time for evening service came. Then only did Thomas consent to leave his house and go into the cathedral, for, he said, it is my duty to lead the service. The priests tried to hurry him, they tried to drag him along quickly, but Thomas would not hasten. He walked slowly and solemnly, having the great cross carried before him as usual. He feared no man. When at last he was safe within the cathedral, the priests wished to lock and bar the doors, but Thomas forbade them. "'This is not a fortress, but the house of God, into which every one is free to enter. I forbid you to bar the doors,' he said. The priests were in despair. They loved their archbishop, they knew that he was in danger, but he would not try to save himself. Even as he spoke, there was a great noise without. The door burst open, and the four knights, dressed in complete armour and carrying drawn swords in their hands, rushed into the cathedral. The frightened people fled in all directions. The archbishop was left almost alone. Only three remained with him, his cross-bearer, and two other faithful friends. In the dim twilight which filled the cathedral it would have been easy for Thomas to escape, but he would not go. "'I told them that they should find me here,' he said again to the monks who tried to drag him away. Even as it was, the knights could not find him. In the gathering darkness they clanked and clanged through the great church, seeking him. "'Where is the traitor?' called one of them. No one answered. Only the word, traitor, echoed again through the silence. "'Where is the archbishop?' he called again. "'I am here,' answered the voice of Thomas a Becket out of the darkness. "'I am here, no traitor, but a servant of God. What do you want?' They stood before him, four armed knights, against one unarmed priest. Yet he was not afraid. "'Will you be at peace with the king?' asked the knights. "'What I have done I shall continue to do,' replied Thomas. "'Then die!' The knights seized him and tried to drag him out of the cathedral, for they feared to kill him in a holy place. But Thomas would not go. He held tightly to a pillar. His cross-bearer, still holding the cross, threw one arm round the archbishop trying to protect him. The knight who had first spoken struck at Thomas. The cross-bearer received the blow upon his arm, which dropped to his side, broken. The next stroke fell on Thomas a Becket's defenceless head. In a few minutes all was over. "'In the name of Christ and for the defence of the church I die willingly,' said Thomas, and spoke no more. Then the knights, fearful of what they had done, fled, leaving the dead archbishop alone in the dark, silent cathedral. End of chapter 31 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On June 19, 2006 In Oceanside, California Our Island Story, Chapter 32 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 32. Henry Plantagenet. The Story of the Conquest of Ireland. When Henry heard of what had happened to Thomas a Becket, he was very sorry. But strangely enough, he had no power to punish the four knights. Their sin was a sin against the church, and they could only be tried by a bishop's court. The bishop's court punished them by sending them on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So Thomas a Becket, in quarrelling with the king, had protected his own murderers. But perhaps their punishment was very real, for they were forsaken and shunned by all their friends. No one would speak to them, nor eat with them, and at last they died in misery and loneliness. All England was filled with horror at the dreadful deed. The people had loved Thomas when he was alive. Now that he was dead they called him a saint. From far and near they came as pilgrims to his grave, over which a splendid shrine, glittering with gold and gems, was placed. Nearly four years later the king himself came as a pilgrim to show his sorrow and repentance. He rode on horseback to Canterbury, but, as soon as he came within sight of the cathedral, he got off his horse, and walked barefoot, wearing only a shirt, and carrying a lighted candle in his hand, until he reached the shrine. For a whole day and night, having nothing to eat or drink, he knelt in prayer before the grave. For a still greater punishment he made the monks beat his bare back with knotted cords. All this show of sorrow could not bring back the great archbishop, who had been murdered in consequence of a few words spoken in anger. But it pleased the Pope, who was very angry because Thomas a Becket had been killed. He blamed Henry, and would scarcely believe that he had not told the four knights to do the wicked deed. In those days the Pope was very powerful indeed. Even kings stood in awe of him, and Henry was glad to make peace with him by any means in his power. Until now, in this book, we have spoken only of England, although England is but one of the countries which form the United Kingdom. Each of these countries has a history of its own, but it would be too difficult to tell all the stories in one book, so I shall tell only the story of each country after it has been joined to England. There are four countries in the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Of these, England and Ireland were the first to be joined together. This happened in the reign of Henry II, in 1172 A.D. England, you remember, had at one time been divided into seven kingdoms, and in the same way Ireland was still divided into four, and the kings of these four divisions were always fighting with each other. Now one of these kings, who was called Dermot, came to Henry and asked for help against another of the Irish kings. Henry promised help if King Dermot would acknowledge him as overlord. This King Dermot said he would do. Henry was very glad to fight with the Irish because he knew it would please the Pope, and perhaps make him forget about the death of Thomas a Becket. The Pope was angry with the Irish because they would not pay him some money to which he thought he had a right. 
Henry first sent some Norman knights over to Ireland, and then went himself. There was a good deal of fighting, but in the end Ireland was added to England, and ever since the kings of England have been lords of Ireland too, although many years passed before they could be said really to rule there. Henry's great reign closed in sorrow. His sons did not love him, and they rebelled and fought against him. They were encouraged in this by their mother, who was not a good woman. Two of Henry's sons died before him, both of them while fighting with their father. Two others, called Richard and John, were kings of England after him. John was Henry's favorite son. He was the only one who had not rebelled against him. But when the king lay very ill, the nobles came to tell him that John, too, had rebelled. This last sorrow broke Henry's heart, crying out, Ah, John, John, now I care no more for myself nor for the world. He turned his face to the wall and died. Henry was a very rich king, for, besides being king of England and lord of Ireland, he was ruler over more than half of France. Later you will hear how one of his sons lost all these French possessions. End of chapter 32. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. On June 19, 2006. In Oceanside, California. Our Island Story. Chapter 33. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall Chapter 33 The Story of Richard Coeur de Leon This King Richard, I understand, ere he went out of England, let make an axe for the nonce, therewith to cleave the Saracen's bones. The head in sooth was wrought full wheel, thereon was twenty pounds of steel. The country where Christ was born, lived, and died is called Palestine. The capital of that country is Jerusalem. From that far-off country the story of Christ was carried all over the world. Many listened to the story and were glad, but the country where he lived fell into the hands of the Saracens and Turks, who neither believed in nor loved Christ. When people for the love of Christ went the long, long journey to Palestine, in order to see for themselves the holy sepulchre, these Saracens and Turks ill-treated them, and insulted their religion. At last a monk called Peter the Hermit went through Europe, preaching and calling upon all Christians to fight for the city of their Lord. If they truly loved Christ, he said, they would deliver his grave from the hands of the Saracens. At his call Christian people rose, eager to show their love, and journeyed to Palestine, but the way was long and difficult, and few reached the capital. The people, however, were not disheartened, and the following year a great army set out, which did reach Jerusalem, and after much fighting the holy sepulchre was taken from the Turks. Later on the Turks took it back again, and so, for nearly two hundred years, with times of peace between, Christians and Turks were at war. These wars were called Crusades, 
which means wars of the cross. The word comes from the Latin word crux. They were called crusades because the people who fought in them were fighting for the place where Christ died upon the cross. As a badge or sign, they wore a cross upon their armor or clothes. Many kings and princes joined these wars. Henry II had been making ready to go to Palestine when he died. His son, Richard I, who was king after him, made up his mind to go as soon as he was crowned. Richard had not been a good son. He had helped to make his father's last days unhappy, but when his father was dead he was sorry for what he had done, and he punished the people who had helped him to rebel, instead of rewarding them as they had expected. Richard was very brave, as his name, Cour de Leon, which means lion-hearted, shows. He was a great soldier. He loved to fight. He loved to have adventures. So instead of staying at home and looking after his kingdom as he ought to have done, he went far away to Palestine to fight. And his people were proud of their king and glad to have him go, for they knew that he would make the name of England famous wherever he went, although Richard himself was really hardly English. He had indeed been born in England, but he had lived nearly all his life in France, and he did not know nor care much about the English people. Richard Coeur de Leon came to England to be crowned. He sold everything he could in order to get money for the crusade, for wars always cost a great deal of money, and then he sailed away. But first he chose two bishops to rule the country while he was gone. One was a very old man, and the other, William Longchamps, was Norman. He could hardly speak a word of English, and he treated the people so badly that they hated him, and soon rebelled. Now Richard's younger brother John wanted to be king of England, so he encouraged the people to rebel. Then he began to rule, but the unhappy people soon found that John was no kinder than William Longchamps. Indeed, he was rather worse, for John wanted the kingdom for himself, and Longchamps, although proud and haughty and cruel to the people, was at least true to his king. John and his Norman friends oppressed the people, and the hatred between English and Norman, to which Henry II had done so much to put an end, flamed up again. Many of the English left their homes, or were driven from them, and the land became full of robbers and outlaws. One of the most famous of these outlaws was Robin Hood. He lived in Sherwood, a forest which at that time covered a great part of the centre of England. He was the head of a large band, and so powerful was he that he was called the King of Sherwood. And indeed his followers loved and obeyed him, as they would have done a king. Robbers, as a rule, are not men to be admired, but these were wild times, very different from ours, and Robin had been forced to become a robber through the wickedness of the rulers of the land. Among his own band he kept such good order that in Sherwood women and children could wander safely, where it was dangerous for haughty knights and wicked priests to go. Robin's rules were strict, and those who would not obey them were driven out of the band of merry men, as his followers were called. But look ye, do no husbandman harm, that tilleth with his plough. No more ye shall the good yeoman, that walketh by greenwood shaw. Nor no knight, nor no squire, that will be good fellow. These bishops and archbishops, ye shall them beat and bind, 
the high sheriff of Nottingham, hold him in your mind. The sheriff of Nottingham was Robin's greatest enemy. Many times he tried to catch Robin, but he never succeeded. In those days bows and arrows were used in battle instead of guns, as gunpowder had not been invented. Bows and arrows were also used for hunting wild animals. The English archers were the most famous in the world, and Robin Hood was the most famous archer in England. He could split a willow wand, and hit a mark which another man could hardly see. Robin and his men lived in caves in the forest, shooting the king's deer for food, and getting money by robbing the rich knights and priests who travelled through the green wood. But they never hurt or robbed the poor people. Indeed, Robin used to help many of them. The common people loved him, although the rich and great barons and nobles hated him. Far away in Palestine news of the wicked things which John was doing reached Richard, and he felt that it was time that he should go home again. He had not succeeded in what he had set out to do. He had not won Jerusalem from the Turks. But he made a truce with their great leader, Saladin. A truce means that the people who have been fighting do not make peace for good and all, but that they promise not to fight against each other for some arranged time. Saladin and Richard made a truce for three years, during which time Saladin promised that no harm should be done to the pilgrims who came to the Holy Sepulchre. Richard set sail for home, but his heart was in the Holy Land. Tears filled his eyes as its shores grew dim in the distance. Stretching out his hand as if in prayer, Blessed land, he cried, farewell. To God's keeping I commend thee. May he give me life that I may return to deliver thee from the hand of the unbeliever. As Richard sailed homeward, storms arose, and his ship was wrecked upon the shore of Austria. Nearly every one was drowned, but the king and a few of his knights escaped. While in Palestine, Richard had quarrelled with the Duke of Austria, and he knew that it would not be safe to travel openly in this land. So the king and his knights disguised themselves as merchants hoping in that way to pass safely on their journey. But they had many adventures, and more than once were nearly discovered. At last Richard was left with only one knight and one little page. When they arrived at the large town near which the Duke of Austria lived, Richard and the knight lay hidden, while the page went into the town to buy food. They had been travelling for several days without daring to enter a house, and all the food they had was finished, and they were both weary and hungry. Richard, like many brave and reckless people, was neither thoughtful nor careful. He gave the page a large sum of money, and allowed him to go into the town carrying the king's gloves in his belt. In those days only very rich people wore gloves, and Richard's were beautifully embroidered with silk and gold, such as only kings and princes wore. The page had often before bought food for his master, and he went fearlessly into the market-place to get what was needed. But when he handed the merchant a large piece of gold in payment, the man looked sharply at him. "'Who is your master?' he asked. "'My master is a rich merchant called Hugh,' replied the boy. "'He is returning from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land.' "'Merchant, indeed,' said another man. "'Look at his gloves.' A third plucked them from his belt. "'Merchant, indeed!' 
he too cried, "'these are king's gloves. Who is your master, boy?' "'I have told you,' replied the page steadily. "'He is a merchant called Hugh.' But the townspeople would not believe that. They beat and tortured the poor lad. Still he would not tell. They dragged him before the duke with whom Richard had quarrelled in Palestine. He was more strong and cruel than the others, and at last forced the page to confess that his master was Richard Coeur de Leon, the King of England. Then Leopold, Duke of Austria, was very glad. He hated Richard with a great hatred. He sent soldiers to the king's hiding-place, seized him, and put him in prison. Duke Leopold kept Richard prisoner for some time, and then he sold him to the Emperor of Germany, for a large sum of money. The Emperor of Germany also hated Richard, so he, in his turn, put him into prison. Then the Emperor wrote to the King of France, telling him that the King of England was safely imprisoned in one of his strong castles. And King Philip of France was glad, for he too hated Richard, and had been helping Prince John stir up the English people to rebellion. When Prince John heard about it, he was glad too. So a great many people rejoiced that Richard Coeur de Leon was in prison. End of chapter 33 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On June 19, 2006, in Oceanside, California Our Island Story, Chapter 34. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 34. Richard Coeur de Leon. THE STORY OF HOW BLONDEL FOUND THE KING Richard Coeur de Leon, who loved to be free, who loved to fight and ride and hunt, to do great deeds of strength and daring, hated to be shut up in a dark and narrow prison. Yet he did not despair. He loved, too, to laugh and sing, and he made friends with his jailers, wrestling and fighting with them, and astonishing them by his great strength and when he was weary of that he would sing to them, or write poetry. But sometimes he was sad. Although nearly all the poetry which Richard wrote has been lost, one mournful little song which he made in prison is still left. It was written in French, for Richard, you remember, was almost French, and could speak very little English. Here it is in English words. No captive ever sings so sweet a strain As he who weareth not the prisoner's chain. Yet song may glad his days of weariness. Friends fail me not, but shame for them I fear, If I, for lack of gold, this vile duress, Sustain another year. Well know my knights and servants every one, English, Poitavan, Norman, or Gascon, that to no comrade would I help refuse, but I would spend my wealth till he were free. And this I say, yet them I not accuse, for my captivity. 
true it is said and i have learned it sore dead folk no lovers have nor captives more but if to save their wealth here i do lie disgrace and scorn shall unto them be still and if i suffer more they suffer will though i be left to die prince john felt that nothing now stood between him and the throne of england he told the people that the king was dead and would never come back again he seized the royal castles and what gold and jewels he could find belonging to the king in england but the english would neither believe nor follow john meanwhile blondel a minstrel or singer who loved king richard took his harp and wandering from castle to castle sought his master all through germany for the emperor kept secret where he had imprisoned richard wherever blondel heard of some unknown prisoner there he stopped and sang a song which richard and he had made and sung together again and again blondel sang this song but no answering voice ever came from any of the grim castle walls at last one evening weary and almost hopeless he began to sing beneath the walls of a castle called trifels o richard o my king thou art by all forgot through the wide world i sadly sing lamenting thy drear lot alone i pass through many lands alone i sigh to break thy bands o richard o my king thou art by all forgot through the wide world i sadly sing lamenting thy dread lot blondel's voice was sad and broken his heart was heavy and he could scarcely sing for tears but hardly had he finished the first verse when from a window high above him another voice took up the tune and sang the minstrel's song is love alone fidelity and constancy though recompense be none the voice rang out clear and full and strong blondel knew and loved it it was the voice of richard coeur de leon blondel leaned his head back against the rough stone of the castle wall and wept for joy he had found his king back to england the minstrel went with his great news and when the english people heard it they were glad but the emperor would not set richard free until the people paid a large sum of money called a ransom the land had already been made very poor through the wars and robberies of john but the english people wanted their king so much that they denied themselves almost everything in order to raise enough money when they had gathered the money they sent it to the emperor and richard was at last set free as soon as he was out of prison richard hurried to england he must have been glad to see the white cliffs of his own land again he had been away four years and fourteen months of that time he had been shut up in a dark and lonely prison the people were so glad to see their king again that poor though they were they had such grand decorations and rejoicings that a german knight who came home with richard was quite astonished had my lord the emperor known said he how rich a country england still was he would have demanded yet more money richard set himself at once to bring order into the kingdom most of the people were on the side of the king and prince john soon submitted to him their mother queen eleanor begged richard to forgive his brother i forgive him said richard and i hope i shall as easily forget the wrong he has done me as i know he will forget my pardon 
He knew that John was not really sorry, and would rebel again as soon as he had a chance. Richard remained in England only a few months, and then he went to France. There he spent the rest of his life, chiefly fighting with the king of that country. But Richard left a good and wise man to rule in England, and the people were happier, although they had to pay heavy taxes in order to help Richard in his French wars. This was very unfair, as these wars did England no good. But as long as the kings of England had possessions in France, the English had to pay for French wars. So it was a good thing for England when at last all the French possessions were lost. Richard was killed in France in 1199 A.D. while besieging a castle called Chalouse. He was riding round the walls with one of his captains, looking for the best place of attack, when a young archer put an arrow to his bow, and saying, Now, God speed my arrow, let it fly. The arrow hit Richard in the shoulder. The wound was not a bad one, but doctors in those days were not very clever, and the doctor who drew out the arrowhead did it so badly that the wound was made much worse. In a day or two it became so bad that Richard felt he was going to die. But he swore that he would first take the castle and kill the archer who had caused his death. The castle was taken, and Richard, in his terrible wrath, hanged all the soldiers except the archer. He was kept for some more dreadful death. Richard was lying in great agony when the young archer was brought before him. Villain! said the king, looking fiercely at him. What have I done to you that you should kill me? The young man drew himself up, and, looking proudly at the king, and not in the least afraid of his angry frown, replied, With your own hand you killed my father and my two brothers. Kill me, torture me if you will. I am glad to die, having rid the world of one who has wrought so much ill in it. Then there was silence between these two proud, brave men, as they looked each other in the eyes, the one a poor soldier, the other a dying king. But Richard, although fierce and hasty, was generous, and above all things he loved courage. Boy, he said, I forgive you. Then, turning to his captains, Loose his chains, he added, let him go free. And give him a hundred shillings to boot. So Richard Coeur de Leon died. He was so brave that all Europe rang with his fame. The Saracens stood in such awe of him that when little children were naughty, their mothers would say to them, Be good now, or Richard of England will come to you. And the children would be good at once for fear of him. Thinkest thou that Richard of England is in that bush? A rider would say to his horse if it were startled, so great was the terror of his name. Richard was a good knight and a brave soldier, but he was not a good king. He reigned for ten years, yet only six months of that time did he spend in England. No doubt he thought it was a great and good thing to fight for Jerusalem, but how much better it would have been if he had tried to rule his own land peacefully and bring happiness to his people. End of chapter 34. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. On June 23rd, 2006. In Oceanside, California.
Our Island Story, Chapter Thirty Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter Thirty Five. John Lackland. The story of Prince Arthur. When Richard Coeur de Leon died, his brother John, who had plotted and rebelled against him when he was alive, became king. He was called by the French John Sans Terre, which means without land, and John Lackland by the English. He was so called because when his father Henry the Second died, John had no kingdom left to him as his brothers had. John was the youngest and the worst of all Henry's sons, and he was not the heir to the throne of England. The real heir was Prince Arthur of Brittany, the son of John's elder brother Geoffrey. And now the French king Philip, who had fought against Richard and helped John, suddenly turned round and began to fight against John because he would not let Arthur be king. John was wicked and wily. And he easily got Arthur into his power and shut him up in prison. But John was not content with that. He greatly feared that the English people might want to have Arthur as their king, and he resolved to make that impossible. Prince Arthur was placed in the charge of a man called Hubert, and wicked King John ordered this man to put out Arthur's eyes. Hubert actually said he would do this cruel deed. One morning he brought two men into Arthur's room, ready to put out his pretty blue eyes with their dreadful hot irons. Arthur was a gentle, loving boy, and he was fond of his stern jailer, and Hubert, in his own rough way, was fond of the little prince. Now he felt sad and sick at heart at the thought of what he had to do. Are you ill? said Arthur. You look so pale. I wish you were a little ill so that I could nurse you and show you how much I love you, he added. When Arthur spoke to him so kindly, the tears came into Hubert's eyes. But he brushed them away and determined to do what the king had commanded. I am not ill, but your uncle has commanded me to put out your eyes, he said roughly. To put out my eyes? Oh, you will not do it, Hubert. I must. Oh, Hubert, Hubert, how can you? said Arthur, putting his arms round Hubert's neck. When your head ached only a little, I sat up all night with you. Now you want to put out my eyes, these eyes that never did nor never shall so much as frown upon you. I have sworn to do it, said Hubert sadly. Oh, but you will not do it, you will not, you will not, Hubert. And so Arthur begged and prayed till Hubert could resist no longer, and he sent the wicked men with their dreadful red hot irons away. But Hubert was afraid that King John would be angry because his orders had not been obeyed, so he told him the cruel deed had been done, and that Prince Arthur had died of grief and pain. Then wicked King John was glad, but the people both in France and England were very sad when they heard this news. Every one mourned for the young prince. All through the land bells were tolled as if for a funeral. 
There was so much anger against John, and so much sorrow for the prince, that at last Hubert told the people that what he had said was not true, and that Arthur was still alive. Then every one was glad. Even King John was glad at first, because many of his nobles had told him plainly that he would find no knight to follow him to battle, nor to guard his castles at home, if he had really killed his little nephew. But King John's heart was black and wicked, and he could not rest while he knew that Prince Arthur lived. So one dark night he came to the castle in which his nephew was kept prisoner. After that night no one ever saw Prince Arthur again. Next morning, when the sun shone in at the narrow window where he used to sit, it shone into an empty room. For Arthur's poor little body was lying at the bottom of the Seine, with a great wound in his heart made by his wicked uncle's cruel, sharp knife. End of chapter 35 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org on June 23rd, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 36. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall Chapter 36 John Lackland The Story of the Great Charter The French barons soon grew weary of John and his misrule, and they all leagued against him. They fought and conquered him, and he had to fly from Normandy, which, with all his other French possessions, were lost to him forever. But, although he was no longer Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, Lord of Touraine and Maine, John was still King of England, and to England he returned, to rob and oppress the people. The wise man called Hubert Walter, who had ruled England during the last years of Richard Coeur de Lyon, now died. He had been Archbishop of Canterbury, and John was very glad when he died, as he was one of the few men who kept him from doing just as he liked. John chose a friend of his own as the next archbishop, but the monks of Canterbury chose someone else. Both these men went to the Pope to ask him which of them ought to be the archbishop. Henry II, you remember, had quarrelled with Thomas a Becket over this very point, because, he said, he had the right to choose the English bishops, and the Pope had nothing to do with it. The Pope said that neither of these men should be archbishop, and he chose another man altogether, called Stephen Langdon. Stephen Langdon was a very good man. In fact, no better archbishop could have been chosen. But John was furiously angry when he heard that his friend was not to be allowed to be archbishop, and he banished Stephen Langdon from the country. Then the Pope was very angry with John, and told him that, if he did not allow Stephen to come back at once, he would lay England under an interdict. Interdict comes from a Latin word which means to forbid. The Pope meant that he would forbid any religious service of any kind to be held in England. John did not care. He meant to have his own way. So did the Pope. 
John would not give in, and the churches were closed. No bells were rung, no services were held, people could not be married, little babies could not be christened, dead people could not be buried. Cobwebs and dust filled the churches, weeds choked the graveyards. It was a sad and gloomy land. Still, John did not care. Then the Pope excommunicated him. Excommunicate is another Latin word, and means that John was put out of union or companionship not only with the church but with every human being. The Pope told the people that John was no longer king, and that they need not now obey him. They were forbidden to eat or drink with him or to serve him. Whatever he did was wrong. In fact, he had lost all rights as a man and as a Christian. He might be looked upon as a wild animal. Anyone who chose might kill him. Still John did not care. He laughed at the Pope. Then the Pope told the King of France that he would be doing a good and Christian act if he conquered John and took possession of England. The French King was only too pleased to have a good excuse for invading England, and he began at once to prepare to fight. Then suddenly John grew frightened and gave way. He had found out that not only the Pope and the French were against him, but the Scotch, the Irish, the Welsh, and even the English were all ready to fight. He was alone in the world, hated and despised by all. So powerful was the Pope in those days. From being insolent and scornful, John now became meanly humble, and did a shameful thing. The Pope sent a messenger to England, and John, kneeling before this messenger, took the crown from his head and gave it to him. The Pope's messenger kept the crown for five days, and then he gave it back to John, but he did not give it to him as the free King of England. He gave it to him, telling him that henceforth he could wear it only as the servant of the Pope, and that he must promise always to do as the Pope commanded. The English people felt sad and ashamed that their king should be under the Pope like this, but John did not care, for the Pope was now his friend. And John knew that the Pope could be as powerful a friend as he had been an enemy. One good thing at least followed. The interdict was taken from the land. Once more church bells rang, hymns were sung, and the silent gloom passed away. Another good man who had helped to protect the people from John now died. When John heard of it, he was very glad. "'At last I am really King of England!' he cried, for he thought that there was no one else in all the land to hinder him from being as bad and cruel as he wished. But he was mistaken. Stephen Langdon, the man whom the Pope had made Archbishop of Canterbury, turned out to be the people of England's best friend. You remember that King Henry I had granted a charter of liberties to the people. That charter had been broken, set aside, and forgotten. Stephen Langdon and the barons now drew up another charter, which they determined to make John grant to them. This charter was much the same as that of Henry, only it gave still greater liberty to the people. It is called the Magna Carta, or the Great Charter. Magna means great. 
The charter is very long, and some of it you would find difficult to understand, but I will tell you a few of the things in it, for the Magna Carta is the foundation of all our laws and liberty. No free man, it says, or merchant or peasant, shall be punished a great deal for a very little fault. However bad they may have been, we will not take their tools or other things by which they earn their living away from them. No free man shall be seized or put in prison, or have his goods and lands taken from him, or be outlawed or exiled, or in any way brought to ruin, unless he has been properly judged and condemned by the law of the land. To no man will we sell, or deny, or delay right or justice. These things seem to us now quite natural and right, so you can imagine what evil times these were when the king was unwilling to grant such liberty to his people. But King John was very unwilling to grant it. When he first read this charter he was furiously angry. Why do they not ask for my kingdom at once? he cried. I will never, never grant anything that will make me a slave of the people. But the church and the barons and the people were all against John. Agree he must. Yet he kept delaying, from Christmas till Easter, from Easter till midsummer. Friend after friend deserted him, till at last he found that the whole country had risen against him like one huge army, and he had only seven knights left who were still true to him. The angry barons would no longer be put off. They forced the king to meet them at a little place on the Thames called Runnymede. The barons and their army camped on one side of the river, the king and his friends on the other. On a little island between they met and talked, and there, on the 15th of June, 1215 A.D., the great charter was sealed with the king's great seal. The king was sullen and angry. At the last he would have refused to set his hand to the seal, but Stephen Langdon stood beside him and the stern barons around. Then he found that he had to bend his will to that of the people. John not only sealed the charter, but he agreed that twenty-four barons should be appointed to see that he kept the promises which it contained. He agreed only because he was compelled because the barons stood there in bright armour with sharp swords and fierce looks, because he knew he had no friend to stand by him and help him to resist. When the meeting was over and John went back to his palace, his anger was terrible. He threw himself on the floor, foaming with passion. "'They have given me four-and-twenty overlords!' he screamed. "'I am no king with four-and-twenty overlords!' He cursed the barons and the people with terrible curses. He tore and bit the rushes with which the floor was covered. He gnashed his teeth, growling and snarling like a wild animal mad with rage. Yet this charter, against which John fought so fiercely, was nothing new. The laws and promises it contained were the laws and promises of Edward the Confessor, of Alfred the Great but they were also the laws and promises which the foreign kings of England had broken and trampled on ever since William the Conqueror had won the Battle of Hastings. Many copies of the Great Charter were made, and these copies were sent to cathedrals and other safe places to be taken care of. 
This was done so that the people throughout all the land should know of their liberties, and if one copy were lost or destroyed there should still be others. It is nearly seven hundred years since the Magna Carta was sealed, yet one copy still remains. It is yellow and stained, but we treasure it greatly for the memory of what it was and is to us. It is kept safely in London, in the British Museum. Some day you will go there and look at it. John sealed the Magna Carta because he had no choice, but he never meant to keep the promises it contained, and he did not keep them. He sent to France for soldiers, and when they came he made war on his own people. He asked his friend the Pope for help, and the Pope helped him by excommunicating all the barons, by laying London under interdict, and by telling him that he need not keep his promises. But the people of England said that this was a matter with which the Pope had nothing to do, and so they paid no attention to him. The church bells rang, there was preaching, praying, and singing in the churches, and people were married and buried and christened as usual. The Pope was very angry, but he could do nothing. Then, as John still went on his wicked way, the people sent to France and asked Louis, the son of the King of France, to come to fight against John, promising to help him and to make him King of England. Louis came, but there was little need for him to fight, as very shortly John died. While crossing the wash to meet Louis, he, his army, and all his treasure were overtaken by the tide. John himself was nearly drowned, and his crown, his jewels, and the baggage of the army were lost. A few days later John died. Some say that he died of anger and grief, others that he was poisoned. Others that his death was caused by eating a great many raw peaches, and by drinking a quantity of new cider too greedily. No king of England has ever been so bad as John. He was a bad son, a bad brother, a bad king, and a bad man. Yet out of his wicked reign great good came to the English nation. The loss of Normandy, which was caused by John's cruelty, proved to be a blessing to England. Norman lords no longer came to England expecting to fill the best places in the land. French was spoken less and less, until only a few French words remained, which we still use, and which now form part of the English language. The hatred between Norman and English died out, because the differences disappeared, and the Norman barons became English barons. In the reign of Stephen the barons, you remember, were fierce and wicked, and oppressed the people in terrible ways. In the reign of John the barons had become the champions of the people, and took up arms for them against a wicked king. When the barons forced John to grant the Magna Carta, they fought not for themselves, as barons and Normans, but for the whole English people. For the first time since the conquest, the people of England acted as one people. The Normans had disappeared. England was England again. She had conquered the conqueror. This England never did, nor never shall, lie at the proud foot of a conqueror, if England to itself do rest but true.
End of chapter 36. Read by Kara Schallenberg on June 23, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 37. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 37. Henry of Winchester. The Story of Hubert de Burgh. When King John died, the anger of the barons died too, and, although he was only nine years old, they chose his son Henry to be their king. "'His father was wicked,' said the barons, "'but the prince has done us no wrong. Why should we be angry with him?' So they crowned Henry, and told Louis to return to his own country. But Louis was angry that, having been brought from France, and promised the crown of England, he should be told to go away again. He would not go. So there was fighting once more. Louis sent to France for men, and a great fleet of ships filled with soldiers came sailing to England. Long ago, you remember, Alfred the Great had seen how much better it would be to stop the Danes from landing at all, and he built ships and fought them at sea. Now a brave man called Hubert de Burgh saw the same thing. When he heard that more Frenchmen were coming, he said, "'We will never let them land. We will fight and conquer them at sea.' So under his command a brave little English fleet sailed out from Dover to meet the great French fleet. And the English conquered the French, as Hubert had said they would. The wind was blowing from the English to the French, and the English threw quicklime in the air, which was blown into the eyes of the French, and blinded them. The English archers then poured arrows among them, while their quick little ships crashed with their pointed prows against the great French vessels, piercing holes in their sides, until the water rushed in and they sank. The English were altogether so quick and fearless that the French were no match for them, and their fleet was utterly destroyed. On land, too, the English beat the French, and Louis, seeing that his cause was lost, went back to France. Henry III was too young to rule, so Hubert de Burgh was made regent. He was a good regent, but his work was hard, for, after the wickedness and misrule of John, the kingdom was in a bad state. But in spite of his good and wise teacher, Henry grew up to be neither good nor wise— Listening to the advice of evil friends, he treated Hubert very badly, and at last obliged him to fly for his life. One night, while Hubert was sleeping quietly, he was suddenly awakened by a friend. "'Fly, my lord Hubert!' he cried. "'Stay not a moment. The king has sent his soldiers to take you. I have ridden hard, but they are close behind me. You have not a moment to lose.' Hubert got out of bed, and, not even waiting to dress, fled with bare feet and only a cloak round him to the nearest church. There, with his hand upon the cross, he waited in the dark and cold. Hubert fled to a church for sanctuary, or safety. 
when any one was hunted by his enemies, if he ran into a church, reached the altar steps, and laid hold upon the cross, no one dared to hurt him. This was called taking sanctuary. It was considered a dreadful and wicked thing to kill any one in sanctuary. Yet, you remember, the knights killed Thomas a Becket on the steps of the altar in Canterbury Cathedral. Hubert waited in the cold and silent church until, with the first grey streaks of dawn and the first early twitter of the birds, he heard the distant tramp of feet and the clatter of swords and armour. Nearer and nearer came the sounds, till at last a knight, followed by three hundred armed men, dashed into the church. "'Hubert de Burgh,' said the knight, "'in the king's name I command you to leave this holy place. Give yourself into my hands.' that I may take you before the king to answer for your misdeeds as a rebel and traitor. "'Nay,' replied Hubert, "'to my king have I ever been true, but he has listened to false friends who would take my life. Here have I sought God's safety. Here will I remain.' "'That shalt thou not do,' cried the knight fiercely. "'On, men, and seize him!' Then the armed men rushed forward, forced Hubert from the altar, and carried him out of the church. "'He is indeed a mighty man, and strong,' said the knight, when he saw how Hubert struggled. "'He must be fettered, or we shall never carry our prize to London.' Near the church stood a smith's forge, and the smith, who had already been aroused by the noise, was ordered to light his fire, and make fetters for the prisoner.' Soon the red fire glowed in the grey morning light, and the ring of hammer and anvil was heard. "'For whom do I make these fetters?' asked the smith, as he paused in his work. "'For the traitor and rebel, Hubert de Burgh,' replied the knight. "'What?' cried the smith, throwing down his hammer. "'For Hubert de Burgh? That will I never do. Hubert de Burgh is no rebel. He saved us from the French. He gave us safety and peace.' Some one else may do your evil deeds. No iron of mine shall ever fetter such noble hands. Fool, cried the knight, drawing his sword, do as I command you, or die. I can die, replied the smith calmly. Yes, kill me, do with me what you like. I will never make fetters for Hubert de Burgh. When the smith spoke like this, the knight began to feel rather ashamed but he would not let Hubert go, both because he hated Hubert, and because he feared the king. So he and his followers bound Hubert with a rope, set him upon a horse, and took him to the Tower of London. When the Bishop of London heard what had happened, he was very angry. Being a brave man, he went straight to the king. "'My liege,' he said to him, "'have you heard how your soldiers have broken the peace of Holy Church, and have dragged Hubert de Burgh from sanctuary, casting him into prison? "'I know that the rebel and traitor Hubert de Burgh is now in prison,' replied Henry. "'Hubert de Burgh is no rebel,' said the bishop, "'and if he were, the soldiers have still no right to drag him from the safety of the church. Let him go back, or I shall excommunicate every man who has had to do with it.' Very unwillingly the king allowed Hubert to go back to his place of safety, but he sent soldiers to dig a trench round the church, and round the bishop's house which was close to it. 
There the soldiers watched day and night, so that Hubert might not escape, and so that no food might be taken into him. But in spite of the strict watch kept by the soldiers, Hubert's friends found means to send him food, and for many days he lived in the church. Then still closer watch was kept, and, at last, thinking it a disgrace to die of hunger, Hubert left the church of his own accord, and gave himself up to the king's soldiers, who at once carried him off to the Tower of London. There he was kept for some time, but at last Henry, who was not really cruel, although he was weak and foolish, set him free. After that Hubert lived quietly in his own home, and took no more part in the ruling of the kingdom. End of chapter 37 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On June 25th, 2006, in Oceanside, California Our Island Story, Chapter 38 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 38. Henry III of Winchester. The Story of Simon de Montfort. King Henry III married a French lady called Eleanor. She brought a great many friends and relatives from France with her. Soon all the best places at court were given to these French people, just as they had been in the time of Edward the Confessor, and of William the Conqueror. These strangers did very much as they liked. They set aside the great charter, and, when the English barons complained, the French nobles sneered at them. "'What are your English laws to us?' they said. "'We are far greater and more important than you. "'Such laws are made for English boors.' We will not keep them unless we choose. This treatment was not to be borne, and at last the English rose in rebellion, and forced the king to send away his French favourites. It would take too long to tell of all the quarrelling and fighting there was in this reign. Henry broke the great charter over and over again. No fewer than ten times did he sign it, and each time, as soon as he had got what he wanted, he broke the promises he had made. But in spite of this, the power of the people was growing stronger. Henry spent a great deal of money, far more, indeed, than he ought to have done. But he could not wring gold from the people as William the Conqueror had been able to do. He had to ask the barons to give it to him, and they would not grant it until he promised something in return. Henry did indeed wring money from the Jews. They were the richest and most despised people in the country, and Henry, although he was not usually cruel, was very cruel to them. One Jew who refused to give Henry money was put into prison. Every morning his jailer came and pulled out one of his teeth, till at last the poor man could bear the pain no longer, and he gave the king what money he wanted. The bishops and barons grew tired of broken promises, and such unkingly acts, so, when next Henry asked for money, a great council was called to which all the barons and bishops in England came. 
There was a great deal of talking, and it seemed as if nothing would come of it, but the barons told Henry very sternly that he had not acted as a king ought. He had constantly broken his promises, and only if he now solemnly swore to the charter would they give him money. Then Henry answered, It is true. I am sadly grieved that I have acted as I have done. I will try to do better. But when he tried to blame some of the bishops and barons, they sternly said, Our Lord King, we will not talk of what is now past, but of what is to come. Then all the bishops and archbishops, dressed in their splendid robes and carrying lighted candles in their hands, walked in solemn procession to the great royal hall at Westminster. There, in presence of the King and all the barons, they solemnly excommunicated every one who should in the future take away in any degree the freedom of England. The words they used were very grand and terrible. The king, as he listened, held his hand over his heart. His face was calm and cheerful, and he looked as if he never had tried, and never would try, to take away his people's liberty. When the solemn sentence was finished, and the deep voice of the archbishop died away in silence, all the bishops and the archbishops threw down their lighted candles, crying, May all those who take away our liberties perish, even as these lights perish. The bells were then rung joyfully, the candles were again lighted, and King Henry, standing among his people, spoke. So help me God, all these promises will I faithfully keep, as I am a man, a Christian, a knight, and a crowned and anointed king. Thus once more the great charter was solemnly signed and sealed. But in spite of this ceremony, Henry did not keep his promises. He listened to evil friends, who told him that if he did, he would not be king, nor even lord in England, but the subject of his people. Now there arose a great man called Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester. For many years he had been the faithful friend of King Henry, whose sister he had married. Henry sometimes heaped favours upon him, sometimes quarrelled with him, just as he was pulled this way or that by his friends. When Simon de Montfort first came to England, the barons did not like him. "'Here is another Frenchman,' they said, "'who comes to eat our bread and take away what belongs to us.' But Simon soon showed that, if he was French in name, he was English at heart. As Henry continually broke his promises, Simon took the side of the barons and the people, and Henry feared him, as he feared no other man. One day Henry went for a picnic on the Thames. He had rowed from his palace at Westminster some way down the river, when a thunderstorm came on, and he was obliged to take refuge in Simon's house, near which he was passing. As he arrived there the thunderstorm began to clear. "'There is nothing to fear now, my lord,' said Simon, as he ran to meet the king. "'I fear the thunder and lightning,' replied the king, "'but I fear thee more than all the thunder and lightning in the world.' "'My lord king,' replied the earl sadly, "'it is unjust that you should fear me who am your faithful friend. I have ever been true to you, and yours, and to the kingdom of England. Your flatterers are your enemies. Them you ought to fear.' Led by Simon, the barons forced Henry to hold a council at Oxford, 
to draw up new laws for the better ruling of the kingdom. The wonderful thing about these laws was that they were written in English. Ever since the conquest, the laws had been written in French or Latin, but at last English laws for English people were again written in their own language. But Henry did not keep these new laws any better than he had kept the old ones. The patience of the people came to an end, and there was war, the king's army fighting against Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, and his followers. This was called the Barons' War, and it ended in a great battle at Lewes, in which the king was defeated. After this battle it was really Simon de Montfort who ruled the country. Henry was indeed still king in name, but both he and his son, Prince Edward, were Simon de Montfort's prisoners. It was Simon de Montfort who laid the foundation of what is now our Parliament. Up to this time only bishops and barons had been allowed to come to the meetings of the council. Simon, however, now chose two knights from every shire or county, and two citizens from every city, and sent them also to the council to speak for the people and to tell of their wants. Now, too, the great council began to be called Parliament, which means talking place, for it is there that the people come to talk of all the affairs of the kingdom. Unfortunately, the barons could not long agree among themselves. Prince Edward escaped from Simon and joined the discontented barons, and there was another battle between the prince's men and Simon's men, in which Simon was killed. The people had loved Simon, and now they sorrowed for his death, and called him a saint, and Sir Simon the Righteous. He is also called the father of the English Parliament. Although Prince Edward fought against Simon de Montfort, he had been his pupil, and had learned much from him, and he was growing into a wise prince. He now helped to make peace, and when peace again came to the land, Prince Edward, like so many other princes and kings, joined a crusade, and went to fight in the Holy Land. In 1272 A.D., while his son was still in that far-off country, King Henry died, having reigned fifty-six years. His reign had not been a happy one for England, yet good came of it, for his very weakness made the people strong, and out of the troubles of his reign grew our freedom of speech, and our power to make for ourselves the laws under which we have to live. End of chapter 38 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On June 25, 2006 In Oceanside, California Our Island Story Chapter 39 this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 39. Henry III. The Story of the Poisoned Dagger. In far-off Palestine the army of the Crusaders lay encamped before the town of Acre. The air was hot and stifling, the sun seemed a ball of fire hung in the still blue sky. Having put off his heavy armour for the sake of coolness, 
Prince Edward lay within his tent, wearing only a long loose robe of linen. He lay idle, thinking perhaps of the mighty deeds which his great uncle, Richard Coeur de Leon, had done in this same place eighty years before, wondering too if he would be able to do as great things. Presently the curtains of the doorway parted. My lord prince, said a soldier, bowing low, the emir of Jaffa hath sent his servant yet again. He craves to be admitted to your presence. I will receive him, replied the prince, and the soldier once more left the tent. Edward had been fighting with the emir of Jaffa, but now, pretending that he wished to become a Christian, this emir sent daily messages and presents to the prince. And the prince, noble and honest himself, believed the emir to be honest too. In a few minutes the curtains of the doorway parted once more, and the emir's dark slave crept in. He bowed himself to the ground, then, kneeling humbly before the prince, drew out a letter. Edward took the letter, and, as the prince read, the slave crouched on the ground, watching him with his bright, dark eyes. Then slowly, slowly his brown hand crept to the belt of his white dress. So slowly it crept, that it seemed hardly to move. Suddenly, as quick as lightning, a keen, bright blade flashed in the air, and fell. But Edward, too, was quick and strong. He threw up his hand, and caught upon it the blow which had been aimed at his heart. Then, springing from the couch, he overthrew the slave, and, placing his foot upon the man's neck, wrenched the dagger from his grasp. In another moment the slave lay still and dead upon the sand. At the noise of the struggle several frightened servants came running into the tent, and one of them, seeing the slave upon the sand, seized a stool and dashed his brains out. "'Foolish man,' said Prince Edward, "'see you not that the slave is already dead? What you do is neither brave nor honourable, but the action of a coward.' Prince Edward's wound was slight, but the dagger had been a poisoned one. When his wife, the beautiful Princess Eleanor, heard of it, she hurried to her husband's tent. Before those about her knew what she meant to do, she knelt down, and, putting her lips to the wound, sucked it. It was said that if the blood from a poisoned wound was sucked at once after the wound was made, the wounded person would not die. It was a brave thing for Princess Eleanor to do, for she might herself have died but she loved Edward so much that she was willing to risk her own life. Yet the wound grew worse, and it seemed likely that Edward would die. He was very calm and brave, and did not fear death, but tried to comfort his friends and servants, for they were all very sorrowful. But the princess sat beside him weeping, and would not be comforted. Then, calling for parchment and ink, Prince Edward wrote down all that he wished to be done with his money and lands, after he was dead. This was called making his will. Now a clever doctor came to the prince, and said, I think I can cure you, only you will have to suffer a great deal of pain. Do what you think best, said the prince, and cure me if you can. Then the princess threw herself upon him, crying bitterly, and would not let any one touch him. "'I know you only want to hurt him more,' she sobbed. "'I cannot bear it.' But Edward gently put her away. "'Hush, hush,' he said, 
and gave her into his brother Edmund's arms. "'Do you love your lord and brother?' asked the doctor, turning to Edmund. "'Aye, that I do,' replied he. "'Then take this lady away, and do not let her lord see her again, until I tell you.' So Princess Eleanor was led away weeping. "'Ah, weep, lady,' said Edmund gently. "'It is better that you should weep than that all England should mourn.' But England did not mourn, for the doctor was clever, and in less than a fortnight Prince Edward was again quite well. The false emir sent messengers to Edward to say that he was sorry that the prince had been wounded, and was glad that he was better. But Edward no longer trusted the emir. He looked gravely at the messengers. "'You bow before me,' he said, "'but you do not love me. Therefore, go.' And they were allowed to go in peace. Although Edward's soldiers longed to be revenged upon them and kill them, the prince would not allow it. After this Edward did not stay long in Palestine. He heard that his father was ill, so he made a ten years' peace with the Sultan, as the King of the Turks is called, and sailed back to England. On his way home he heard of his father's death. He knew that that meant he was now King of England, but he was very sad, for Edward had loved his father, although he could not help knowing that in many things he was foolish and untrustworthy. End of chapter 39 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On June 25th, 2006 In Oceanside, California Our Island Story Chapter 40 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 40 Edward I. The Little War of Chalons. In the days when knights wore armour and fought with sword and lance, they often used to play at war, as if they had not real fighting enough. These mock wars were called tournaments. They took place in a great open space or plain, which was called the lists. The knights, dressed in full armour, with painted shields and waving plumes, met each other and fought as they would in battle. Each wore the badge of his lady-love in his helmet. Generally the weapons which they used were blunted, so that they could not hurt each other much, but sometimes the weapons were sharp, and the mock fight ended in wounds and death. Round the lists were seats where fair ladies and great princes sat to watch the tournament. Each knight was eager to do great deeds, so that he might win the praise of the beautiful ladies who looked on. When the jousting, as it was called, was over, the fairest lady placed a crown of bay-leaves on the head of the victor. This crown was prized more than if it had been of gold and gems, and each knight did his best to win it. It was thought that no knight could show his love and reverence for his lady better than by jousting and tilting in her name. As Edward travelled home to England he passed through France 
and near to a little town called Chalons. When the count of that place heard that the great English prince was passing through his land, he sent a message asking that they might meet in a tournament, with a thousand knights on either side, lance for lance. Far and wide Edward was known as a brave and courteous warrior, and although his knights whispered that the Count of Chalons had no love for the prince, and meant to do him harm, Edward accepted the challenge, as such a message was called. Indeed, it seemed to him that he was in honour bound to do so, for it was counted unknightly to refuse a challenge. Great preparations were made, and on a fair day in May the plain of Chalons was gay with knights on horseback, and lovely ladies and people of all ranks in holiday dress, crowding to see the tournament. The earth seemed to shake as Edward and his thousand splendid and brave English knights thundered over it, but the Count of Chalons came to meet them, not with one thousand men, as had been agreed, but with two thousand. Yet the English had no fear, and the tournament began. It was soon seen, however, that it was no friendly trial of strength, but a fight of bitter hate. The Count rode again and again at Edward, until his lance was splintered in his hand. Then throwing away the shaft he seized the prince round the neck, and tried to drag him from his horse. This, according to the rules of the tournament, was a mean and unknightly thing to do. Edward sat his horse like a rock, and, great though the strength of the French Count was, he could not move him. Then suddenly Edward spurred his horse, it sprang forward, and the Count, who still clung tightly to Edward, was pulled from his saddle, and fell to the ground with a fearful crash. Enraged at such unknightly behaviour, Edward leaped down, and beat with the shaft of his lance upon the armour of the fallen Count, heeding not his cries for mercy. As of a hammer upon an anvil, blow after blow fell, until at last the rage of the prince was spent, and he allowed the Count to rise. The Count then offered his sword to the prince in token of submission, but Edward turned from him in scorn. "'Nay, Sir Knight,' he said, "'this day have you proved yourself no true knight. My servants may receive your tarnished sword, I shall not touch it.' So the Count was obliged to give up his sword to a common soldier, which, for a true knight, was the deepest disgrace. Meanwhile the English archers outside the lists, seeing that the French knights far outnumbered the English, and that there was no fair play, shot with their arrows at the horses of the French. Many of them fell dead, dragging their riders to the ground, where they lay helpless, trampled upon alike by friend and foe. Then the French foot-soldiers joined in the fight, and the tournament became a battle. The English were far outnumbered, but even so they had the best of it. They took many of the French knights prisoners, making them pay large sums of money for their freedom. The common soldiers they slew, because, they said, they were but rascals, and of no great account. So fierce a tournament was this that, ever after, it was called the Little War of Chalons. End of chapter 40 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On June twenty fifth, 2006, in Oceanside, California
Island Story, Chapter Forty One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall, Chapter Forty One. Edward the First, the Lawgiver. THE STORY OF THE FIRST PRINCE OF WALES Soon after the little war of Chalons, Edward reached England. The people welcomed him with delight, and he and his beautiful queen, Eleanor, were crowned at Westminster Abbey with great splendour. Since the days of Alfred no king had been received with such joy and love, for the people felt that Edward was truly and indeed an English king. We think now that such names as Henry, Richard, and John are English names. But they were not known in England until after the conquest, when they were brought into England by the French. For more than two hundred years the kings of England had borne French names, and had indeed been Frenchmen, but Edward was a Saxon name. The king had been born, and had lived nearly all his life in England. He spoke the English language and he loved his people and his country, which no king of England since Harold had truly done. Not only did Edward love his people, but he longed for their love in return, and tried to be a good king. The feasting and rejoicing at the coronation continued for a fortnight. Many large new buildings had to be made to hold all the guests. The streets were hung with silk and embroidery. Rich men scattered handfuls of gold and silver to the people. Fountains ran with wine instead of water. For the coronation feast alone there were needed three hundred and eighty cattle, four hundred and thirty sheep, four hundred and fifty pigs, eighteen wild boars, two hundred and seventy-eight flitches of bacon, and twenty thousand fowls. Never had there been such feasting and grandeur in England. The King of Scotland came to the coronation, and with him a hundred knights. When they got off their horses they let them go free, and any one who caught them might keep them. Seeing this, and not wishing to be outdone, the King's brother, Edmund, and three other nobles came each with a hundred knights riding upon splendid horses, and, leaping down, they too let them go free for any one to have who would. Edward was crowned King of England, Lord of Ireland, and Duke of Aquitaine. Aquitaine was all that remained of the great French possessions of Henry the Second. But Edward longed to rule over the whole island of Britain. He wanted to be Prince of Wales and King of Scotland, as well as King of England. You remember that, hundreds of years before this, when the Saxons came to Britain, they gradually drove the Britons out before them, until they took refuge in the mountains of Wales. There they remained, speaking the ancient British language, and having very little intercourse with the English, but often fighting with them. And the kings of England, ever since the days of Edward the Confessor, had from time to time forced the Welsh to own them as overlords. When Edward came to the throne he sent for Llewellyn, Prince of Wales, to come to do homage, that is, to own him as overlord. Llewellyn would not come. Six times did Edward send. Still Llewellyn refused. 
This made Edward very angry, and, hearing that a beautiful lady was coming from France to be married to Llewellyn, he seized her and kept her prisoner in London. He then sent messengers to the Prince of Wales, telling him that he should have his bride when he had done homage, and not till then. Llewellyn, instead of submitting, was furiously angry. He raised an army and marched against Edward. But brave little Wales could not do much against great England. The Welsh were soon defeated and scattered, and their prince starved into submission in his castle on Snowdon. But as soon as Llewellyn did homage to Edward as overlord, the king acknowledged him as Prince of Wales, and not only let him have his bride, but made a great wedding feast for her, and gave her many presents. So there was peace. But peace did not last long. In the days when Arthur was king, Merlin, his wise counsellor, had foretold that when money should be round, a prince of Wales should be crowned in London. Before the time of Edward I there was very little money of any kind. When the people wanted to give change, they took a large piece of money, and cut it into two or three or four pieces, just as they liked. This, of course, made it easy to cheat with money, for when a coin was cut up it became difficult to know whether it really was a coin or not. Edward made a law forbidding people to cut coins into pieces, and he had pennies and small silver coins made, in order that people could give change. So money was round, instead of being all sorts of shapes, as it had been. The Welsh thought that the time of which Merlin had spoken had now come, and they began to fight with the English, hoping to conquer them, and see Llewellyn crowned in London. But the Welsh were again defeated, and this time Llewellyn was killed. In the cruel fashion of those days his head was cut off, and sent to London. There it was crowned with a silver crown, and carried through the streets on a spear, and at last it was set upon the tower, wreathed with willow. Then the English laughed unkindly, saying that the prophecy was fulfilled. Sad and overcome, the Welsh once more owned England's king as lord, but when the barons came to do homage to Edward, he promised to give them a Welsh prince as ruler, one who had been born in Wales, and who could neither speak French nor English. On the day appointed, when the barons gathered to do homage to this new ruler, Edward appeared before them, carrying in his arms his little baby son, who had been born at Caernarvon Castle only a few days before. He was truly a prince who could neither speak French nor English, nor, indeed, any other language. This little prince was named Edward, like his father. Ever since that time, the eldest son of the King of England has been called the Prince of Wales, and England and Wales have formed one kingdom. End of chapter 41. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. On July 3rd, 2006. In Oceanside, California. Our Island Story. Chapter 42. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. 
Chapter Forty Two Edward the First The Hammer of the Scots. When Edward had joined Wales to England, he longed more than ever to gain possession of Scotland. It seemed too as if he might succeed in doing this, for the King of Scotland died, and the heir to the throne was a little princess called the Maid of Norway. Edward I arranged with the people of Scotland that this princess should marry his son Edward, Prince of Wales, and in that way England and Scotland would be peaceably joined together. But unfortunately, on her way from Norway to claim the crown of Scotland, the princess died. So Edward's hopes of joining the two countries together in that way were at an end. After the death of the Maid of Norway, twelve Scottish nobles claimed the crown, and as they could not agree as to who had really the best right to it, they asked Edward, who was known to be a wise and just man, to settle the question. Edward said that a man called John Balliol had the best right to the crown of Scotland, and John was accordingly crowned at Scone, the town where all the kings of Scotland were crowned. But before Edward said that John was the real heir, he made him promise to own the king of England as overlord. Edward had no right to demand this homage, and John Balliol had no right to give it, but John did give it. Perhaps he thought, if he did not, Edward would choose someone else. The Scots had always been a warlike people, and ever since the days of the Romans they had fought with the people in the south part of the island, and had tried to take away part of their land. At last it had been agreed between the kings of England and Scotland that the Scots should be allowed to keep part of the north of England, on condition that they did homage for that part. Just as the Norman kings of England did homage to the king of France for Normandy and their other French possessions. But the king of England had no more right over Scotland than the king of France had over England. The people of Scotland were very far from agreeing to John Balliol's bargain with Edward, and in less than a year quarrels began, and war followed. Edward marched into Scotland with a great army. And although the Scots were in the right, and fighting for their freedom, Edward was the stronger, and the Scots were defeated. Edward, thinking he had conquered the Scots, went back to England, taking with him the crown and sceptre of Scotland, and also the stone of destiny, on which the Scottish kings sat when they were crowned. This stone was supposed to be the very stone which Jacob used as a pillow when he slept in the wilderness, and saw the vision of the ladder up to heaven. With the angels going up and down upon it. The Scots prized this stone very highly, and it had been prophesied that, wherever it was, there the kings of Scotland would be crowned. Unless the fates are faithless found, and prophet's voice be vain, where'er this monument is found, the Scottish race shall reign. Edward took the stone of destiny to Westminster, and there it remains to this day. And it is always used when the kings of Britain are crowned. Besides taking these treasures away, Edward caused many of the old Scottish records to be destroyed, hoping in that way to make the people forget their freedom. But all this only made the Scots more determined not to submit to the King of England. Their weak king, John Balliol, had been driven from the throne, but other brave leaders arose. 
and wars between England and Scotland continued until Edward died in 1307 A.D. Edward died while on his way to fight once more against Scotland. He was within sight of its blue mountains, and he died knowing that its people were still free, and that his dearest wish was not fulfilled. The disappointed king begged his son to go on with the war, to carry his bones with the army, and bury his heart in Scotland. But Edward II did not do as his father wished. He turned back to London, and Edward I lies buried in Westminster, where you may still see his grave with these lines upon it in Latin. Here lies Edward I, the Hammer of the Scots, 1308. Keep troth. Edward I has many names. Edward of Westminster, because he was born there. Edward Longshanks, because he was very tall, and his legs were long and thin. Edward the Hammer of Scots, because of the many battles he fought with them. But the name by which it is best to remember him is Edward the Lawgiver. He earned this name by the many wise laws which he made. Although his people were not always pleased with these laws at first, they generally came to see that they were just and good. Edward was a great soldier, and a valiant knight, but it was because he loved England and made good laws, because he was a true man and kept his word, that his people loved him, and mourned for him when he died. All that are of heart true, a while hearken to my song, of dolor that death hath dealt us new, that maketh me sigh and sorrow among, of a knight that was so strong, of whom God hath done his will, methinks that death hath done us wrong, that he so soon shall lie still. All England ought to know of whom that song is that I sing, of Edward, king that lieth so low, though all the world his name did spring, truest man in everything, and in war wary and wise. For him we ought our hands to wring, of Christendom he bare the prize. Now is Edward of Carnarvon, king of England in his right. God never let him be worse man than his father, not less of might. To hold his poor man to right, and understand good counsel, all England to rule and direct, of good knights there need not him fail. Though my tongue were made of steel, and my heart smote out of brass, the goodness might I never tell, that with King Edward was. King, as thou art called conqueror, in each battle thou hadst the prize. God bring thy soul to the honour that ever was and ever is, that lasteth aye without end. Pray we God and our Lady, to that bliss Jesus, ascend. End of chapter 42 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org on July 3rd, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 43 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 43. 
Edward II of Carnarvon, the story of King Robert the Bruce and Bohun. When Edward, the first Prince of Wales, was young, he had a French friend called Piers Gaveston. Piers was tall and handsome and gay, but he was wicked. He led the prince into all kinds of mischief, until at last King Edward I put his son in prison for a time, and banished Piers from the kingdom. When Edward lay dying, he begged his son never to bring Piers back again. The Prince of Wales promised, but as soon as his father was dead, he broke his word and sent for Piers. Edward II made Piers Earl of Cornwall and married him to a great lady. Then, leaving him to rule England, the king crossed to France to marry the beautiful Princess Isabella. The English barons were very angry at again having a foreigner to rule. They hated Piers, and Piers laughed at and insulted them. He called them all sorts of names, such as the Jew, the Actor, the Black Dog, and the Hog. Piers made Edward II do many wicked things. The king filled the court with bad and foolish people like himself, sending away the wise men who had helped Edward I to rule. At last, the hatred of the barons grew so fierce that they forced Edward to send Piers away, and when, after a time, Edward brought him back, they seized him and put him to death. Edward was very angry with the barons for killing Piers, and he was sad too, for he had really loved his friend. He was too weak a king, however, to punish the barons, so he was obliged to pretend that he forgave them. But he did not become a better king, even after his favorite was dead. Meanwhile, the Scots were fighting against the English and driving them out of Scotland. A king called Robert the Bruce was now upon the throne, and under him the Scots fought so bravely that soon the English had lost all the Scottish towns which they had. Except Stirling. The castle of Stirling was strong, and the English soldiers within it brave. But the Scots were brave too, and determined, for they were fighting for their freedom and their country. At last, the governor, feeling that he could hold out no longer, promised to yield the castle on the 24th of June, 1314 AD, if before then no help came to him. When Edward II heard that Stirling was in danger, he at last roused himself. He gathered a great army of English, Irish, Welsh, and French, barons and men of high degree, with their servants and followers, a hundred thousand men in all. Such a splendid army as now marched over the border had never before been seen in Scotland. As they passed through the country to Stirling, fear filled the hearts of the women and children. They thought of their husbands and fathers and brothers. Who were gathered at Stirling to meet this great army, and wept for them as lost. The whole of Robert the Bruce's army numbered less than forty thousand men, and they were neither so well drilled nor so well armed as the English. But King Robert was a great soldier and a wise general. He knew that he could only hope to defeat the English by using his brain as well as his sword and battle axe. Therefore, he chose the position of his army with great care. In front there lay marshes, through which the English would have to ride in order to reach the Scots, who were drawn up upon the dry plain beyond. Where the ground was firm, Bruce made his men dig pits about three feet deep. These pits were filled with twigs and branches of gorse, and the turf was then laid over them again, 
so that from a distance it seemed like a firm and level plain. On one side of King Robert's position rose the steep castle hill, and on the other flowed the little stream called the Bannock. Only from the front could the English attack, and the front was guarded by pits and marshes. Not till the 23rd of June, the very day before the governor had promised to give up the castle, did King Edward appear and camp opposite the Scottish army. When King Robert heard that the English were near, he drew up his army in battle array, ready to fight, although he did not expect to do so that day. Randolph, Earl of Moray, the nephew of King Robert, was given charge of a small body of horsemen, and told that he must stop any of the English who might try to get into Stirling, for it might have been very bad for the Scots had the English been able to take a strong position there. The Scottish leaders stood watching the advance of the English when King Robert's eye caught the gleam of armour away to the east. Turning to his young nephew, he said, "'Ah, Randolph, a rose has fallen from your crown.' By this he meant that Randolph had missed a chance of making himself famous, for a party of English horsemen were quietly stealing towards Stirling, and Randolph, who had been told to prevent this, had not noticed.' Too ashamed to reply, Randolph called to his men and dashed upon the English. They turned and charged Randolph so fiercely that Douglas, another of the Scottish leaders, begged to be allowed to go to his help. No, replied King Robert, let Randolph win back the honour which he has lost, or die. I cannot risk the whole battle because of a careless boy. Leave him. So Douglas waited and watched. It seemed to him as if the little company of Scotsmen were being swallowed up by the English horsemen. Then Douglas could bear it no longer. "'My lord king, I pray you, let me go,' he said. "'Randolph and his men are sore pressed. I cannot stand idly by and see him die.' And, scarcely waiting for permission, Douglas rode off. But as he came near to Randolph he saw that the English were giving way. "'Halt!' he called to his men. "'Randolph has no need of our help. We will not take the honour from him.' And, without striking a blow, he and his men turned and rode back to the king. Soon the English horsemen were seen flying from the field, and Randolph, joyful and victorious, returned to his place. He had recovered the rose which had fallen from his crown. Meanwhile the rest of the English army was steadily advancing— King Robert the Bruce, mounted upon a little brown pony and wearing a gold crown upon his helmet, rode up and down in front of his army, watching everything, commanding and encouraging. His armour was light, and for a weapon he carried only a battle-axe. Seeing King Robert so lightly armed, an English knight called Sir Henry de Bohun thought he would earn a great name for himself and win the battle at one blow. So, setting spurs to his horse, he rushed upon the king at full speed. As the full-armed knight came thundering along on his great war-horse, King Robert, sitting firmly on his little pony, waited calmly. When Bohun reached him, when the sharp point of the spear almost touched his armour, Bruce suddenly made his pony spring to one side. The knight flashed past him. Quick as lightning, Bruce turned, rose in his stirrups, and lifting his battle-axe high in the air, brought it crashing down upon the helmet of Bohun. Head and helmet were split, and without a groan Bohun fell dead to the ground, while his riderless horse galloped wildly away.
Cheer upon cheer rose from the Scottish ranks, and the nobles crowded round their king, glad, yet vexed with him. "'My lord, my lord, is it well thus to risk your life?' they said. "'Had you been killed, our cause were lost.' But the king paid no heed to them. "'I have broken my good axe,' was all he said. "'I have broken my good axe.' End of chapter 43 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On July 5th, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 44 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall Chapter 44 Edward II of Carnarvon The Story of the Battle of Bannockburn After the death of Bohun there was no more fighting that day. The sun soon set, and during the short summer night the two armies lay opposite each other, silently waiting for the dawn. When day broke the whole plain was astir. Trumpets sounded, drums beat, and as the English army advanced, they seemed to roll onward like mighty waves. "'No hand but God's can save us from so great a host,' said the Scots. And as a holy abbot with bare feet and head passed along the lines to bless them, they knelt in prayer. "'See!' cried King Edward. "'They kneel. They ask for mercy.' "'True,' replied the knight to whom he spoke. They ask for mercy, but from heaven, not from us. These men will conquer or die on the field. The fight began, and long and fiercely it raged. The Scottish horse scattered the English archers, and the English horse fell into the pits which Bruce had caused to be dug. The English army was already in confusion when suddenly, over the brow of a neighbouring hill, there appeared what seemed to them another Scottish army. Then the English fled. Blind with fear they rode, hardly knowing where. Many were drowned while trying to cross the river forth. Others fell over the rocky banks of the Bannock till the stream was choked with the dead. The new army which had so frightened the English was no army at all, but only the servants and camp-followers whom Bruce had separated from the soldiers and sent to wait behind the hill. They had grown tired of watching and doing nothing, so they tied cloths onto poles for banners, armed themselves with sticks, and came to join the fight. They came just at the right time, for the English, already beginning to feel that the battle was lost, fled before this new host. Edward, although he was no coward, fled too. He went first to Stirling, but the governor would not let him stay there. "'Have you forgotten, my lord?' he said, that to-morrow I must yield up the castle to the King of Scots. If you remain here, you will become his prisoner. So Edward rode south, attended only by a few knights. One brave man rode with the king until he thought he was safe, then drawing rein. Farewell, my liege, he said, I am not wont to flee. And turning, he rode back, 
and fell fighting with his face to the enemy. The king fled on, and he had need to flee fast, for when it became known that he had left the field he was hotly pursued as far as Dunbar, which was still in the hands of the English. From there he went in a little fishing boat to Berwick, and so reached England and safety. So eagerly he was pursued, they got to him so near, he was on point of being tain, but got into Dunbar. To Berwick in a fishing boat they sculled him away, while to be kept from wrath of Scots he earnestly did pray. Upon the field many of England's noblest men lay dead, many were wounded, many taken prisoner. So much spoil fell into the hands of the Scots, and so much money was paid to them as ransom for their prisoners, that it was said that Scotland became rich in one day. Scotland became not only rich, but free in one day, for if the Battle of Bannockburn did not quite end the war, it showed what Scotsmen loving their country could do, and in the dark days which were still to come they never again despaired. The Battle of Bannockburn is the greatest battle ever fought on Scottish ground. It is great not because so many noble men fell upon the field, but because at one blow it made the Scots free. Beaten and angry, Edward returned to England, and the rest of his life was dark and miserable. He ruled so badly that at last the nobles put him from the throne, and crowned his little son, who was also called Edward. Edward II, king no longer, was sent as prisoner from castle to castle. No one loved or cared for him, and each new jailer treated the poor fallen king worse than the last, till one night terrible shrieks ran through the castle in which he was imprisoned. In the morning Edward II was found dead. He had been murdered. End of chapter 44 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org on July 5th, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 45 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall Chapter 45 Edward III of Windsor The Story of the Battle of Sluys When Edward III was made king in 1327 A.D., he was only fourteen. He was too young to rule, and the power was really in the hands of his mother, Queen Isabella, and of a man called Roger Mortimer, Earl of March. Both the Queen and the Earl were wicked, so it was a sad time for England. There was fighting with Scotland, fighting with France, sorrow and misery at home. When Edward was eighteen he resolved that he would no longer be king in name only. He took the Earl of March prisoner, tried him for the wicked thing he had done, and condemned him to death. Queen Isabella he shut up in a castle, and would not allow her to rule the kingdom any more but he gave her money to spend, and he went once every year. King Edward then really began to reign. He made peace with France, and, I am sorry to say, war again with Scotland. 
but after fighting there for some time he left Scotland, and began to fight again with France. The war which now began is called the Hundred Years' War, because it lasted, with times of peace between, for a hundred years. It began because Edward said that he had a right to be King of France as well as King of England. He said this was so because his mother, Queen Isabella, was the sister of King Charles the Fourth of France, who had died, leaving no son to succeed him. But the French had a law by which women were not allowed to wear the crown, so Edward had really no right to it. He could not receive from his mother what had never been hers. King Philip the Sixth, who now had the crown, would, of course, not give it up. So a fierce and bitter war began. The first great fight was at sea. Edward sailed from England with a fleet of about three hundred ships. As he came near to Sluys, a town in Flanders, he saw such a number of masts that it seemed as if a forest had come sailing out to sea. "'What ships are these?' said King Edward to the captain of his vessel. "'They are the ships of the King of France,' replied the captain. "'They have often time plundered your coasts. "'They lately burned the town of Southampton, "'and took your good ship, the Christopher.' "'Ah, I have long wished to meet them,' replied the king. "'Now, please God and St. George, we will fight them, "'for in truth they have done me so much mischief "'I will be revenged upon them if possible.' Edward's wife, Queen Philippa, was at Ghent, and Edward had many ladies on board who were going to join her there. So he arranged his vessels with great care, for he knew that the French had far more men and ships than he had. He put the ladies in the safest place, and guarded them carefully with a large body of archers and soldiers. As the sun and wind were both against Edward, he lowered his sails and moved round so that the sun should be behind him. The French, seeing this, thought that he was afraid, and that he was running away. They had been waiting for the English in strong battle array. All their ships were fastened together with heavy chains, so as to make it impossible for the English ships to break through their lines. Seeing the English flee, as they thought, the French unfastened the chains, and made ready to pursue. As the royal standard floated from the masthead, the French knew that the King of England was with his fleet, and they hoped to take him prisoner. They filled the Christopher, the ship which they had taken from the English, with trumpeters and drummers, and, to the sound of music and shouting, sent it to attack the English. But the English won their own ship back again, and amid great cheering manned it with Englishmen once more. The battle was fierce and terrible. The English were often in great danger, for the French were much the stronger, but when the battle was over there were very few Frenchmen left, and most of their ships were sunk or destroyed. It was such a dreadful defeat that no one dared tell the King of France about it. At last his court fool told him. In those days great people always had someone near to amuse them by making jokes, and by laughing at everything. He was called a fool, although sometimes he was very wise and witty. But because he was called a fool, he was allowed to say what he liked, and no one was angry with him. "'The English are great cowards,' said the French king's fool to him one day. "'Why so?' asked the king. 
because they have not the courage to jump into the sea and be drowned like the French at Sluys, replied the fool. In this way King Philip was told of the loss of all his ships, and his anger was so terrible that even his fool fled from him in fear. End of chapter 45 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On July 5th, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 46 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall Chapter 46 Edward III of Windsor The Story of the Battle of Cressy Six years after the Battle of Sluys, another great battle was fought between the French and English at a place called Cressy. Edward had been marching through France for some time, when he heard that King Philip was close behind him with an army of one hundred and twenty thousand men. He himself had only twenty thousand men, but he resolved to camp where he was, on a rising ground near the little French village of Cressy, and there conquer or be conquered. On Saturday, the 26th of August, 1346 A.D., Edward rose very early. He divided his army into three parts. One part he gave in command of his young son Edward, the Black Prince, Prince Edward took his name from the black armour which he always wore, and at this time he was only seventeen years old. Having divided his army, King Edward, carrying a white wand in his hand, and mounted upon a pony, rode slowly through the ranks, talking to the soldiers and encouraging them. He looked so cheerful, and spoke so bravely, that the soldiers cheered him as he passed among them, and if any of them had felt afraid, they took heart again. Then Edward gave orders that the men should have breakfast sitting on the ground where they were, each man in his place. So the men took off their helmets, and, laying their weapons down, ate and drank as they sat upon the ground. The king himself went to a windmill nearby, and there waited and watched for the French to arrive. When at last the French came in sight, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. Then each man of the English rose, put on his helmet, took his weapon in his hand, and stood waiting. King Philip, meanwhile, told four knights to ride quickly forward and bring back news of the English army. The English saw these knights, and saw, too, that they had come to spy, but they took no notice of them, and let them return to King Philip. "'My lords, what news?' said he, as they rode back to him. The knights looked at each other in silence, each waiting for the other to speak first. "'Come, my lords, what news?' said the king again. Then the bravest of the knights said, "'I speak, my lord king, as you desire, and I hope that my companions will tell you if they think that I say wrong. The English are encamped in a strong place. They are well fed and rested, and are waiting for you. Our soldiers are hungry and weary with the long march.' My advice is that you halt here, let the soldiers rest to-night, and to-morrow they will be fresh and able to conquer the English. 
"'I thank you, my lord,' replied Philip. "'It is good advice, and shall be followed.' Then, turning to his generals, "'Go,' he said. "'Command a halt.' Two generals rode off, one to the front, the other to the rear, calling out as they went, "'Halt banners, in the name of God and St. Dennis!' The soldiers in front halted as they were commanded, but those behind would not do so. "'We shall not halt until we are as far forward as the others,' they said, and they marched on. When they overtook the soldiers in front, these, feeling themselves being pushed forward from behind, moved on too, and neither the king nor the generals could stop them. They marched on until they came close to the English. When the soldiers in front saw that they were near the English, they fell back, but those behind still pressed forward, so that the confusion was great. The roads behind the French army were filled with peasants and country people armed with sticks and stones. These peasants made a great noise, and shouting, "'Kill! Kill!' were eager to be at the English. They mixed with the army, and made the confusion worse still. In a few minutes all order was lost, and King Philip, seeing that there was no help for it, decided to begin the battle at once. Besides, as soon as he saw the English, his anger against them rose, so that he longed to be fighting them. "'Forward, archers, and begin the battle, in the name of God and St. Dennis!' he cried. The archers advanced, shouting fiercely, in order to frighten the English. But the English stood still. Not a man moved so much as a finger. Again the French archers shouted. Still the English never moved. With a third fierce yell, the French archers shot. Then the English archers made one step forward, raised their bows, and shot arrow after arrow, till it seemed as if it snowed. When the French archers felt these terrible arrows pierce their arms, breast, head, and legs, even through the armor which they wore, they threw down their bows and fled. These archers were not Frenchmen, but Italians, whom Philip had hired to help him in his war with the English, and when he saw them throw down their bows and run away, he was dreadfully angry. "'Kill these cowards!' he shouted. "'They do but stop the way, and are of no use.' So the French horsemen dashed upon the flying archers, who, having thrown down their bows, had no other weapon, and killed as many as they could, while the English poured arrows upon archers and horsemen alike." It was a terrible battle, and to make it seem still worse there was an eclipse of the sun and a thunderstorm while it was going on. The sky became black, thunder roared, lightning flashed, and rain fell in torrents. Great flocks of crows flew over the field, caw-cawing, in such a fearful manner that even the bravest felt afraid, and thought something dreadful was going to happen. At this battle, too, cannon were used for the first time. Gunpowder had been invented only a short time before, and people did not yet know what a terrible thing it would become in battle. The English had four cannon. They were made of wood, bound round with iron, and, although perhaps they did not kill many people, they at least frightened the French, who already had so much else to make them afraid. Meanwhile the Black Prince was fighting gallantly with his part of the army. But the French about him were so fierce that his knights began to fear for his safety. So a messenger was sent to the king, who was watching the battle from the windmill. "'Sire,' said the messenger, 
"'We entreat you to send help to the prince, your son.' "'Is my son dead?' asked the king. "'No, sire, thank God.' "'Is he wounded?' "'No, sire, but he is in danger. "'The French are fierce about him, and he is in need of help.' "'Then, sir,' replied the king, "'if my son is neither dead nor wounded, "'go back to those who sent you. "'Tell them not to send again to me this day.' "'Tell them that if they do, I shall neither come nor send help so long as my son is living. "'Tell them that I command them to let the boy win his spurs, "'for I wish the glory of the day to be his. "'God will guard him.' "'The knight returned and told the others what the king had said, "'and they were sorry that they had sent any such message, "'and resolved to fight to the last. "'Edward said that he wanted the prince to win his spurs.' By that he meant that he hoped he would do such brave deeds that he might be made a knight. When anyone was made a knight, he received a pair of golden spurs, so when a man did a great deed worthy of a knight, he was said to have won his spurs. The king of Bohemia was with the French army, and his son Charles was fighting for Philip. The king himself could not fight because he was blind. When he heard that the day was going against the French, he asked where his son was. "'We know not,' replied the knights who were round him. "'Doubtless he is in the thickest of the fight.' Really, he had fled from the field, but these gallant knights would not grieve their brave old king by telling him so. "'I too would strike a blow,' said the blind king. "'Lead me into battle.' The knights fastened their horses together with the king of Bohemia in the middle, so that they would not lose him in the crowd of soldiers, and dashed into the fight." When the day was over they were all found dead together, the king still in the middle of them, and their horses still bound to each other. In those days a knight always had a crest and a motto, called a device, painted upon his shield. The crest of the king of Bohemia was three feathers, and his motto was Ich dien, which is German and means I serve. The arms of a fallen foe belonged to the conqueror. So when after the battle the black prince was made a knight, he took the motto and the crest of the king of Bohemia for his own. It has been borne ever since by the eldest son of the king of England, and that is why the Prince of Wales has a German motto. When night fell, and the terrible noise and clamour of fighting ceased, the French were beaten, and their king had fled from the field. The king of England came down from the windmill where he had remained watching the fight. He had not struck a blow, nor put on his helmet all day, not because he was a coward, but because he wanted the black prince to have all the praise of the victory. There, on the battlefield, he took his son in his arms and kissed him. "'Dear son,' he said, "'God give you strength to go on as you have begun. Bravely and nobly have you fought, and you are worthy to be a king.' THE HONOR OF THE DAY IS YOURS. THE PRINCE BOWED BEFORE HIS FATHER. I DO NOT DESERVE ANY PRAISE, HE SAID. I HAVE ONLY DONE MY DUTY. BUT HE HAD SHOWN HIMSELF SO BRAVE THAT HIS FATHER MADE HIM A KNIGHT. HE WAS ONE OF THE FIRST KNIGHTS OF THE ORDER OF THE GARTER, A NEW ORDER WHICH EDWARD the Third FOUNDED, AND THE KING CAN BESTOW UPON ANY ONE. YOU SHALL HEAR WHY IT WAS CALLED BY THIS NAME. King Edward III loved the stories of Arthur and his knights of the round table. 
He made a new round table, and tried to bring back those knightly days, and to make his knights and gentlemen courteous and gentle. One day, at a ball, Edward picked up a lady's garter. Someone laughed rudely, but Edward turned to him and said, Oni soit qui malipense, which is French and means, Evil be to him who evil thinks. Soon, he added, you shall see this garter set so high that you will think it an honour to wear it. And so when he founded a new order of knighthood he made it the order of the garter, and to this day great men are proud to wear it. It was founded on St. George's Day, and the ornament which the knights of the garter wear is called the George. End of chapter 46 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org on July 8, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story Chapter 47 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 47 Edward III of Windsor. The Story of the Siege of Calais. Five days after the Battle of Cressy, Edward began to besiege the town of Calais. He did not fight, for the fortifications were so strong that he knew it would be useless. He made his men build a ring of wooden houses round Calais, in which they could live until the people of the town were starved into giving in. When the governor of Calais saw what Edward was doing, he gathered all the weak, poor, and old people who were not able to fight, and sent them out of the town. He did this so that there would be fewer people to feed and therefore the food they had in the town would last longer. King Edward was surprised to see all these people leave the town, and he asked them what it meant. "'We have no food nor money, and cannot fight,' they replied. "'So the governor has sent us away.' Then Edward, instead of making them return into the town, gave them a good dinner and some money, and allowed them to go safely through his camp to the country beyond." For nearly a year Calais held out bravely. Day after day the people hoped that the King of France would come with his army to help them. But day after day passed, and no one came. "'We have eaten everything,' wrote the governor to Philip, "'even the cats and dogs and horses, and there is nothing left for us but to die of hunger unless you come soon. You will get no more letters from me, but if you do not come you will hear that the town is lost.' and all we who are in it also. At last one morning the watchmen on the walls saw the gleam of spears, and heard the drums and trumpet-call of the French army. When the good news was told, the joy in Calais was great. Pale and thin from want of food, hardly able to walk or stand, the people yet crowded to the walls. Oh, what joy! At last they would be free! The king had not forgotten them. But the day passed. There was no movement in the French camp. No battle-cry was heard, no sounds of war. "'Tomorrow,' said the men of Calais sadly, "'tomorrow the king will fight. "'Tomorrow we will open our gates to our victorious army.' 
But the next day and the next passed by, while the King of England strengthened his camp, and the King of France talked of peace. Then one morning the sun shone upon the army of Philip of France, with its gay banners and glittering spears, as it turned and marched away, without having struck one blow for the town and its brave defenders. Calais was left to misery and tears. All hope was lost. "'Our king has forsaken us,' said the people sadly. When the governor saw that there was indeed no hope, he mounted upon the walls, waving a white flag. King Edward saw the signal, and sent two of his knights to talk with the governor. "'Are you willing to give up the town?' they asked. "'Yes,' replied the governor. "'We have kept the town well and truly for our king, but now we can hold out no longer.' We have nothing more to eat, and we are all perishing of hunger. I will yield the town and castle, with all its riches and treasures, if King Edward will grant us our lives. Nay, replied the knights, our noble king will not accept these terms. You and your people have been too stubborn in resisting him, and have cost him too much. You must give yourselves up, freely and entirely. Whom he pleases he will set free, whom he pleases he will put to death. "'These terms are too hard,' replied the governor. "'We have only done our duty. "'We have fought for our king and master, as you have for yours. "'We know the king of England is noble and generous. "'It cannot be that he will deal so hardly with us. "'Go back, I entreat you, and beg him to have pity.' "'So the two knights rode back and told King Edward what the governor had said. "'But Edward was stern. "'I will listen to no conditions,' he said. "'What, am I to wait twelve months, and then have the saucy rascals make conditions? "'No, let them yield themselves entirely into my hands.' "'But Edward's knights were so full of admiration for the noble men of Calais, "'and they begged their king so earnestly to be merciful, that at last he gave way. "'My lords,' he said, "'I cannot hold out against you all. "'Go back to the governor. "'Tell him to send me six of the chief men of Calais.' They must come dressed in their shirts, with bare heads and feet, with ropes round their necks, and with the keys of the castle and town in their hands. These six shall be mine to do with what I will. The rest shall go free. One of the knights who had before spoken to the governor now returned, and told him what the king had said. "'I beg of you,' said the governor, "'to wait until I have spoken to the townspeople. It is they who must give the answer.' "'I will wait,' said the knight. The governor left the walls, and going to the market-place told the bellman to ring the great bell. At the sound of it all the people of Calais, both men and women, hurried to the town hall. They were full of wonder and hope. They knew something great must have happened. "'What is it?' they asked. "'What is it?' When the people were all gathered together, the governor stood up among them and spoke. He told them of all that he had said and done, and what a hard answer the king of England had returned. When he had finished speaking, the men groaned and the women wept. They were all worn with suffering and hunger. For weeks and weeks they had not had enough to eat, and they could no longer bear the pain of it. But where would six men be found brave enough to give their lives for the others? Even the governor, who, all through the terrible year, had encouraged and cheered the people, now lost heart. 
Hiding his face in his hands, he too burst into tears. For a few minutes there was dreadful silence, broken only by low sobs. Then a brave man called Eustace de Saint-Pierre stood up. He was one of the richest and most important men of the town. "'Friends,' he said, "'it would be a great wrong to allow so many people to die, if in any way it could be prevented. I have such faith and trust in God that I pray he will not forget me if I die to save my fellow townsmen. I offer myself as the first of the six. When Eustace had finished speaking, the people crowded round him. They fell at his feet, they kissed his hands, they thanked and blessed him. Then, amidst the sobs and cries of the people, another and another man rose, till six of the richest merchants of Calais stood together, ready to die for their friends. With ropes round their necks, with bare feet and heads, and carrying the keys of the town in their hands, these six brave men walked through the streets, followed by the townspeople, who wept and sobbed, and blessed them as they went. The governor, who was hardly able to walk, rode before them, mounted upon a poor little thin pony. When they came to the gates of the town, he commanded them to be opened, and the gates, which for a whole year had opened neither to friend nor foe, now swung wide. The governor passed out, and with bent heads the six men followed, feeling that they were saying farewell for ever to their beloved town. Then the heavy gates were closed again behind them. The governor led the way to the outer wall where the English knight still waited. Then he stopped. "'As governor of Calais,' he said, "'I deliver up to you these six citizens. I swear to you that they are no mean men, but the richest and greatest of our town. I beg of you, gentle sir, out of the goodness of your heart, to pray the king that he will not put them to death.' "'I cannot answer for what the king will do,' replied the knight. "'But this I swear to you, I will do all that is in my power to save them.' Then the barriers were opened, the six brave men passed out, and the governor slowly and sadly returned to the town. The knight at once brought the six men of Calais to the king's tent. There they fell upon their knees, presenting the keys of the city to him. "'We are yours to do with what you will,' they said. "'But, noble king,' "'Pity our misery, and spare us.' The king looked at them darkly. He hated the people of Calais, not only because they had held out against him for so long, but because they often fought with his ships at sea and did them much damage. So instead of listening to the prayers of the brave men, he ordered their heads to be cut off. All the lords and knights round him begged him to have mercy, but he would not hear. The knight who had brought the men from Calais begged hardest— "'All the world will say that you have acted cruelly "'if you put these men to death,' he said. "'They come of their own free will "'and give themselves into your hands "'in order to save their fellows. "'Such a noble deed should be rewarded, not punished.' "'But the king only waved his hand "'as if to say that he did not care what all the world said, "'and ordered the headsman to be sent for. "'Then Queen Philippa fell upon her knees beside him, weeping.' "'Ah, my dear lord,' she said, "'I have never before asked a favour from you, "'but now I beg you, by the love you have to me, "'let these men go.' 
The king looked at her in silence, and tried to raise her from her knees, but still she knelt, and still she begged for the lives of these brave men. "'Ah, lady,' said Edward at last, "'I would you were anywhere but here, for I can refuse you nothing. Take the men. They are yours. Do with them as you please.' Then there was rejoicing indeed. The queen led the men away to her own rooms. She ordered clothes to be given to them, and made a great feast for them. They had not had such a dinner for many months. When they were clothed and fed, Queen Philippa sent them away, each with a large sum of money. So ended the Siege of Calais. End of chapter 47 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On July 8, 2006 in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story Chapter 48 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall Chapter 48 Edward III of Windsor The Story of the Battle of Poitiers Nine years passed, and the quarrelling between France and England still went on, and in 1356 A.D. the English, under the Black Prince, gained another great victory over the French. Philip, the King of France, had died, and his son John now reigned. He came against the English with such a great army that the Black Prince, rather than fight, offered to set free all the prisoners he had made, to give up all the French towns which he had taken, and to promise not to fight against the French for seven years. But that did not satisfy King John. He demanded that the Prince and the whole English army should give themselves up as prisoners. The Black Prince refused even to think of such a thing. Then King John said that he would be satisfied if the Prince and one hundred of his best knights gave themselves up. Again the Black Prince refused, and he and his men prepared to fight, and to win or die. "'My men,' said the Prince, "'we are only a very small body compared with the army of the French. But numbers do not always bring victory. Therefore fight manfully.' and, if it please God and St. George, you shall see me this day act like a true English knight. The prince posted his army very cleverly. Only narrow lanes led to the place he had chosen, behind the hedges of which his archers were hidden. As the French knights rode down the lanes, the English archers shot so fast and well that the knights knew not where to turn, and soon the lanes were filled with dead and dying men and horses. The English shouted, St. George! The French, St. Denis! And fiercely the battle raged. But in spite of their bravery and their numbers, the French lost the day, and both King John and his son were taken prisoner. They were led before the Black Prince, who received them very kindly, and treated them as friends, rather than as prisoners. When the evening came and supper was served, the prince made the French king and his son take the most honoured places at table, and instead of sitting down to eat with them, he himself waited upon them. 
King John begged the black prince to sit down to supper with him, but he would not. "'It is honour enough for me,' he said, "'to serve so great a king and so brave a soldier.' After the battle of Poitiers, the black prince remained in France for some time. Then he set out for England, taking King John with him. When King Edward heard that they were coming, he gave orders to the people of London to make the city bright and beautiful in honour of the King of France. So the houses were decked with flags and wreaths of flowers, and the people, dressed in their holiday clothes, marched through the streets in gay crowds, cheering the King of France and their own brave prince. King John was mounted upon a beautiful white horse, and beside him rode the black prince on a little black pony. It seemed as if the prince wanted to do everything in his power to make King John forget that he was a prisoner. But in spite of all the kindness shown to him by King Edward and the Black Prince, John found the months during which he was kept a prisoner, and unable to go back to his own dear land, long and weary. At last, after four years, Edward made peace with France for a time, and set King John free on condition that he paid a large sum of money. King John returned to his own land, but as he could not find enough money with which to pay Edward, he came back to prison like an honourable man, and died in England. All these wars in France had cost a great deal of money. The English people were proud of their king and prince, and glad that they should win so many battles and make the name of England famous, but the people had to pay for these wars. They had to pay tax after tax, and their poverty and misery grew greater year by year. It is true the king could no longer tax the people how and when he liked, for the power of Parliament grew stronger and stronger. It was only through Parliament that the king could now get the money he required, and whenever they gave it to him they made him promise something in return. In this way, as the power of Parliament grew, the power of the king became less, and the country became really more free. But the poor, who were robbed of nearly all their money, found it difficult to understand this. So many men had been killed in the wars that there were too few to do all the work of the land. There were still slaves in England at this time, and when these slaves saw that there were not enough people to do the work, they rebelled and refused to work without wages. Other people joined them, and so there was war between rich and poor. Besides poverty, a terrible sickness, called the Black Death, fell upon the land. Thousands upon thousands died until there were not enough people left in the land to sow and reap and plough. The fields lay barren, no corn was grown, and the people starved. These were very unhappy times for England." King Edward's wars still went on, and it became more and more difficult to find money for them, and, instead of always winning battles, he now often lost them. To the sorrow of every one, the brave black prince died. His health had been broken by the terrible hardships of his long wars in France. At last he became so ill that he could no longer sit upon his horse, nor lead his soldiers in battle, and he came home to England to die. He was buried with great pomp in Canterbury Cathedral. There his tomb is still to be seen, and over it there still hangs the black armour which he used to wear, and from which he took his name of the Black Prince. 
King Edward died shortly after his son, and his long reign, which had been so brilliant and glorious, ended in darkness and misery, for the people, instead of loving and admiring their king, had grown to hate him. End of chapter 48 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On July 8, 2006, in Oceanside, California Our Island Story, Chapter 49 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 49 Richard II of Bordeaux. The Story of Watt Tyler's Rebellion. When Edward III died in 1377 A.D., his grandson Richard, the son of the Black Prince, became king. He was only a boy of eleven, but the people already loved him for the sake of his brave father, and there was great rejoicing when he was crowned. Like so many other boy kings, Richard was too young to reign, and the power was really in the hands of his uncle, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. The people hoped that, with a new king, happier times would come for them, but they were soon disappointed, and John of Gaunt was hated, as Edward had been hated in his last years. The war with France still went on, although it became harder and harder to find money with which to pay the soldiers, and the people were taxed more and more heavily. A new tax, called the Poll Tax, had been first paid in the reign of Edward III. Poll means head, and it was really a tax upon the head of every one in the kingdom over the age of fourteen. Rich people had to pay more than poor people. Still, it was the poor who felt the burden most. This tax was now made three times as heavy as it had been, and the poor were driven almost to despair. Rough, rude men were sent all over the country to gather the money. These men insulted and ill-treated the people, and at last one of them behaved so brutally to the daughter of a man called Watt, that Watt struck him on the head with his hammer, and killed him. This man, Watt, or Walter, was a tiler of houses, and from that he was called Watt the Tiler, or Tyler. In those days people very often took their names from the work they did. As soon as it became known that Watt Tyler had killed a tax collector, the people of the town flocked round him. They had been ready to rise in rebellion before, and now this action of Watt decided them. They armed themselves with any kind of weapon upon which they could lay hands—sticks, rusty swords, old bows, and featherless arrows—and began to march to London. Everywhere, as they passed along through towns and villages, others joined them— and men, leaving their carts and ploughs in the fields, forsook their wives and children till, when they reached London, they were a great army of one hundred thousand men. The chief leaders of this army were Watt Tyler, Jack Straw, and a priest called John Ball. The priest had done a great deal towards stirring up the people against their masters. 
He had already been put into prison three times for preaching that all men should be equal, and that it was wicked for one man to have more money than another. When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? he asked. Many of those who had joined Watt Tyler hardly knew what they wanted. They knew only that they were miserable and poor, and they hoped that if they saw the king he would do something to make them happy. They blamed John of Gaunt for the misery they suffered, and on the road to London they stopped all whom they met and made them swear to be true to Richard the Second, and never to accept any one of the name of John as king. When they came near London they camped upon Blackheath, and sent messengers to the king, begging to be allowed to speak with him. "'You need not fear,' they said. "'We will do you no harm. We have always respected you, and will respect you as our king. But we have many things to say to you which you ought to hear.' "'Tell them,' said King Richard, "'that to-morrow I will meet their leaders by the river.' This answer gave the peasants great joy, and they camped for the night as best they could. They had no tents, nor covering of any kind, and many of them had no supper, for they had eaten any food which they had brought with them, and had no money to buy more. The next day the young king rode down the river to talk to the people as he had promised, but when he saw what a great crowd there was he would not land. He sat in his boat, and tried to talk to the leaders as they stood upon the bank, but they were angry because he would not land, and made such a noise that it was impossible to hear anything. "'Tell me what you want,' shouted the king. "'I have come to hear what you have to say.' "'You must land first. "'Then we will tell you what we want,' yelled the crowd in return. "'But Richard was afraid to land, "'and indeed the barons and lords would not allow him to do so. "'So after rowing up and down the river for some time, "'trying in vain to make himself heard by the howling, yelling crowd on the bank, "'he returned to the tower where he was living.' When the people saw the king row away, they were madly angry. They had been quiet and orderly. They were so no longer. "'Let us march to London,' they said, "'and take it.' The mayor of London shut the city gates, but the poor people within opened them to their friends, and the yelling crowd poured into the city. They broke into all the shops where food was sold, eating and drinking as much as they wanted. They burned and wrecked John of Gaunt's house, called the Savoy, which was the most beautiful palace in London. Other houses and some churches were destroyed, and many people were killed. The prisons were broken open, and all the prisoners set free. Yet the rioters did not steal. They burned and threw into the river the beautiful furniture and jewels belonging to John of Gaunt, because they hated him and blamed him for their misery, but they would not allow anything to be taken away. One man who was seen to steal a piece of silver was thrown into the flames and burned alive as a punishment by his companions. "'We are not thieves and robbers,' they said. "'We are fighting only for truth and justice.' As the day went on the noise grew greater and greater, and when night came the rioters collected in the square in front of the tower. There they made a terrible noise, swearing that— if the king did not come out to them, they would burn the tower. The king and his friends held a council together, and Richard decided the next day he would again try to speak with the people. He sent a message to them telling them to go to an open space called Mile End, and that there he would come to speak with them in the morning. 
A great many of the people, when they heard this, marched to Mile End, but others refused to go away from the tower. Next morning, as soon as the gates were opened for the king to pass out, these rioters rushed in. They killed many of the people in the tower, and nearly frightened the king's mother, the Princess of Wales, to death. Meanwhile, Richard rode to Mile End, and found a great company of people awaiting him there. As soon as he was near enough, he spoke to them kindly. "'My good people,' he said, "'I am your king. What is it you want, and what do you wish to say to me?' "'We want you to make us free for ever, both ourselves and our children. We will not be slaves any longer,' they replied. "'You have your wish,' answered Richard. "'Now go home quietly. Leave behind you one or two men from each village.' To them I will give letters, signed and sealed with my seal, promising what you ask. Then the people, who really did not know quite what they wanted, set up a great shout for the king, and went back to their homes. Richard gave orders to about thirty secretaries, who wrote the letters as fast as they could. They sat up all night to write. These letters promised freedom to all the slaves, and as soon as they were written they were signed and sealed with the king's seal, and given to the men who waited for them. But Wat Tyler had not been with the rioters at Mile End, and he would not agree to go home. He wanted the king to promise much more than that there should no longer be slaves in England. Next day, while he and his followers were gathered at a place called Smithfield, the king came riding by, attended only by a few friends and soldiers. "'Here is the king,' said Watt. "'I will go speak to him. "'You must not move until I give you a signal.' "'He waved his hand and added, "'When you see me make this sign, "'run forward and kill every man of them except the king. "'Do not kill him, for he is young, "'and we can make him do what we like.' "'Then he set spurs to his horse and galloped towards Richard, "'who was waiting to see what the rebels meant to do. "'King,' said Watt, "'Do you see all those men there?' "'Yes,' replied the king, "'I do. Why do you ask?' "'Because they are all under my orders,' said Watt, "'and have sworn to do whatever I command them.' "'I have no objection to that,' replied the king, "'and he went on to speak quietly and peaceably to Watt Tyler, "'but Watt was too angry to listen. "'Finding that he could not quarrel with the king, "'he began to do so with one of the gentlemen beside him.' Hot words passed between them, till Richard, growing angry, turned to the mayor of London, who was also there, and told him to seize Wat Tyler. "'Truly,' said the mayor, "'it ill becomes such a rascal to use such words in the presence of the king. I will pay him for it.' And, raising his sword, he struck Wat Tyler a blow on the head. Wat fell to the ground, the king's friends closed round him, and a minute later he was dead.' When Wat Tyler's men saw him fall, they called out, "'They have killed our captain! Let us slay them all!' And they ran towards the king with their bows bent, ready to shoot. Then Richard did a brave thing. Forbidding any of his men to follow him, he rode alone toward the rioters. "'Friends,' he said, "'what are you doing? I am your king. Follow me. I myself shall be your leader.' At these words many of the rioters were ashamed. Some of them at once slipped quietly away, and Richard, putting himself at the head of the others, 
led them out into the country. Meanwhile, some of Richard's company had fled back into London, crying, They are killing the king! They are killing the king! When the people heard that, many of the king's soldiers came running together, and an army marched out to the fields to meet Richard and the rebels. As soon as he saw them, the king left the rebels and put himself at the head of his own soldiers. Several of the nobles then wished to attack the rebels, but Richard forbade them to do so. But he ordered all the letters promising freedom, which the rioters had among them, to be given up at once on pain of instant death. As soon as the king received the letters, he tore them up in sight of the rebels. These poor people now saw all their hopes of freedom gone. Their leader, too, was dead. So, not waiting for more, they broke and fled they hardly knew where. Many of them returned to their homes, but John Ball and Jack Straw were cruelly betrayed by the very men they had tried to help and free. They were beheaded by Richard's orders, along with many of their followers. The king did not keep any of his promises to the people. "'Slaves you are, and slaves you shall remain,' he said savagely, when the danger to himself was over. It seemed as if the rising had been in vain, but that was not so. Many masters freed their slaves, and although years passed before all were free, Watt Tyler's rebellion was the beginning of freedom for the lower classes in England. Up to this time, many of the laborers and workers who were free men had been treated almost as badly as slaves, but now their condition became better. End of chapter 49. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. On July 8, 2006. In Oceanside, California. Our Island Story. Chapter 50. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 50. How King Richard II Lost His Throne. Richard was only a boy of fifteen when he faced the rioters at Smithfield so bravely, and afterward broke his promises so basely. It would have been better for England if he had always been brave as he was the day he faced the rioters, and never base as he was afterward. It was not until Richard was twenty-one that he really ruled. Until then his uncles ruled for him. "'How old do you think I am, uncle?' he said suddenly to one of them at a feast. "'Your Highness is in his twenty-second year,' replied he. "'Then I am surely old enough to rule. I thank you for your past help, uncle. I require it no longer.' And before his uncle could recover from his surprise, Richard had asked for the great seal and keys of office, and had proclaimed to the people that in the future he himself should rule. And for a time Richard ruled well. He made peace with France, and the taxes on the poor were made lighter. But this was not for long. It was soon seen that he intended to do exactly as he liked, and would take advice from no one. He banished and outlawed those who tried to keep him in check. As he was always in need of money, he seized the lands and money of these banished people, 
and did many other wicked and dishonest things. At last the king, who had been placed upon the throne amid so much rejoicing, came to be hated and despised. One of the people whom Richard had banished was his cousin, Henry of Bolingbroke, the son of his uncle John of Gaunt. Soon after Henry had been banished, John of Gaunt died, and Richard, in spite of having promised not to do so, seized his land and money. When Henry heard of this, he came back to England to take possession of his own inheritance, he said, but really to try to win the crown of England. The people had always loved Henry, and had been very sorry when he was banished, and now they welcomed him back with joy, hoping that he would free them from their hated king. Henry came with only fifteen knights, but as soon as he landed many people flocked to him. Richard at this time was in Ireland, trying to put down a rebellion there. As soon as he heard that Henry was in England he hurried home, but he was too late. Henry was already master of the country. Richard brought a large army with him from Ireland, but many of the soldiers deserted almost as soon as they landed, and joined the standard of Henry. At last, forsaken by all, in utter despair, without food or clothes, or even a bed upon which to sleep, Richard was forced to submit to his cousin. They met at the castle of Flint in Wales. Henry knelt to Richard as to his king and kissed his hand. "'Fair cousin,' said Richard, looking down upon him, "'you are right welcome.' "'My lord,' replied Henry, "'I am come somewhat before my time.' by which he meant that he had a right to the throne after the death of Richard, but that he had not waited until then. But, he went on, I will tell you the reason. Your people complain that you have ruled them badly these twenty years. Please God, I will now help you to rule them better. And the poor, broken, spiritless king replied, Fair cousin, if it pleaseth you, it pleaseth me right well. But when Richard was left alone, he burst out in a furious rage. Would to heaven that I had killed when I might this false cousin, this Henry of Bolingbroke. Amid the curses of his people, forsaken even by his favourite dog which left him for Henry, Richard II was led a prisoner to the Tower of London. There he solemnly gave up his right to the crown, and Henry of Bolingbroke was made king. This was in 1399 A.D. Richard was afterwards sent to Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire, where, it is believed, he was cruelly murdered. End of chapter 50 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On July 8, 2006 In Oceanside, California Our Island Story, Chapter 51. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 51. Henry the Fourth of Bolingbroke. The Story of the Battle of Shrewsbury. 
Henry the Fourth knew quite well that he was not the real heir to the throne, although he tried to make people believe that he was. The real heir was Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March. Richard the Second was the son of Edward the Black Prince, who was the eldest son of Edward the Third. Edmund Mortimer was descended from Lionel of Clarence, who was the third son of Edward the Third. Henry Bolingbroke was descended from John of Gaunt, who was the fourth son of Edward the Third. So, of course, Edmund Mortimer had a better right to the throne than Henry Bolingbroke had. But Edmund Mortimer was only a little boy, and, like so many other little princes, he was passed over and forgotten. The people chose rather to have a strong man who could really rule than a little boy who could rule only in name. But Henry was afraid of Edmund, and kept him a prisoner in Windsor Castle, although he was not otherwise unkind to him. Henry had seized the throne in an unlawful manner, and he found that it was no easy matter to keep it. No sooner was he crowned than plots thickened around him, and people who had hated Richard were now sorry that they had put Henry on the throne. The Welsh, who had been conquered by Edward I, had never been content to live under the rule of English kings, and Owen Glendower, a Welsh nobleman, now rebelled against Henry. He called himself the Prince of Wales, claiming to be descended from Llewellyn, that Welsh prince whom Edward I had defeated and killed. Nearly all Wales joined Owen Glendower, and although Henry went against them with a large army, he was not able to subdue them. The Welsh took several of Henry's nobles prisoner, among them Sir Edmund Mortimer. This Sir Edmund was an uncle of the young Earl of March, whom Henry kept in prison at Windsor. Henry was quite pleased that Sir Edmund should be a captive, because he was afraid that he might at some time try to put his nephew on the throne. The Scots had meanwhile also been fighting with the English, and had been defeated by the Earl of Northumberland and his young son, who was called Harry Hotspur. He was called Hotspur because he was so quick and brave in battle. Harry Hotspur and his father had taken the Scottish leader Douglas prisoner. They expected to get a large ransom from the Scots for him. But Henry said that Douglas must be given up to him. This made the Percys, as Harry Hotspur and his father were called, very angry. They thought that, as they had taken Douglas prisoner, they had a right to the money which would be paid for his release. The Percys then asked Henry to send money to Owen Glendower to ransom Edmund Mortimer, for Edmund was Harry Hotspur's dear friend. But Henry refused. He did not wish Edmund to be free, because he was afraid of him. This refusal made the Percys still more angry. The Percys had helped to put Henry on the throne, but now they became so angry with him that they were sorry that they had done so, and they turned against him. Instead of giving up Douglas to Henry, the Percys set him free, on condition that he should help them to fight against the king. They made friends with Owen Glendower, who set Edmund Mortimer free, and persuaded him also to join them against Henry. When the king heard of this great rebellion, he marched with a large army to Shrewsbury, and there he defeated the Percys before Owen Glendower could come with his soldiers to their help. King Henry had been told that some of the rebel nobles had sworn to kill him, so he went into battle in plain armour, while four or five knights went dressed like the king. These knights were all killed, Douglas himself killing three of them. "'I marvel to see so many kings rise thus one after the other,' he said. 
I have this day slain three. But the real king was not among them, although he was in the battle fighting bravely. The Prince of Wales, or Prince Hal, as he was often called, was only a boy, but he did great deeds at this battle, and even when he had been badly wounded he would not leave the field until victory for his father was sure. Harry Hotspur was killed, Douglas taken prisoner, and so with this one battle the rebellion was almost at an end. Henry next marched against Owen Glendower, but still he could not subdue him. Owen fought against Henry all his life, and at last died among the lonely mountains of Wales, still free and still unconquered. Henry the Fourth had a very unquiet reign. He was in constant fear of rebellion in England, and besides the Welsh, the Scots and the French were always fighting with him. But a great misfortune fell upon the Scottish king, which forced him to make peace with Henry. The Scots and the French had always been good friends, and now King Robert III sent his little son James to France to learn French. But while on his way there his ship was captured by the English, and Prince James, who was only nine years old, was taken a prisoner to London. Henry was very glad to have Prince James in his power, for the Scots were now afraid to fight against him in case he should do some harm to their little prince. "'If the Scots had been kind,' said Henry, "'they would have sent their prince to me. I could teach him the French language as well as any Frenchman.' When the King of Scotland heard that his son had fallen into the hands of his enemy, he was so sad and afraid that he died of a broken heart.' The king's brother, the Duke of Albany, wanted to rule Scotland himself, so he was pleased that James was a prisoner, and did not try to make Henry set him free. Although King Henry kept Prince James in prison, he allowed him to have books and teachers, who taught him many things which were afterwards useful to him, and helped him to become a good king. He also wrote some very beautiful poetry while he was in prison, so those years were not altogether lost." End of chapter 51. Read by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. On July 12, 2006. In Oceanside, California. Our Island Story. Chapter 52. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by Henrietta Elizabeth Marshall. Chapter 52. Henry the Fourth of Bolingbroke. The story of how Prince Hal was sent to prison. Prince Hal was clever and brave, but he was so wild and fond of fun that he was called Madcap Hal. He spent a great deal of time with gay companions, and often got into mischief. One day a servant of Prince Hal, having done something wicked, was taken before the Lord Chief Justice Gascoigne to be tried and punished. When Prince Hal heard about it he was very angry, and went at once to the courthouse. He strode up to where his servant was standing, and, turning to the officer beside him, "'Take off those fetters,' he said. "'Let my man go free. How dare you arrest my servant?' "'My lord prince,' said Judge Gascoigne calmly, "'your servant has broken the law, and must be punished by the law. 
"'If you wish to save him, you must go to the king your father and beg mercy from him. "'He can grant it if he thinks fit. "'Now I pray you leave the court, and allow me to deal as I think just with the prisoner.' "'Prince Hal was very angry at being spoken to like this. "'He was so angry that he hardly knew what he was doing, "'and, springing forward, he struck the judge in the face.' The people in the court were dumb with astonishment and fear. What would happen next, no one knew. The prince was in such a passion that they were afraid he might kill the judge. But Judge Gascoigne sat quite still and unmoved. Sir, he said sternly to the prince, remember that I am here in place of the king, your lord and father. In his name I charge you to give up your sword, for your contempt and disobedience... I send you to prison. There you shall remain until the will of the king your father shall be known. At these calm, grave words the prince was ashamed. All his anger vanished, and, taking off his sword, he bowed humbly to the judge, and went quietly to prison. As soon as the prince had gone, some of his servants ran to tell the king what had happened. They expected him to be very angry with the judge. But after hearing the story, the king sat silent for a few minutes. Then he said, "'I thank God that he has given me a judge who does not fear to do justice, and a son who can obey the law.' Towards the end of his troubled reign, Henry the Fourth was often ill, and although very unwilling to do so, he was obliged to allow Prince Hal to help in ruling the kingdom. Once, while the king was ill, Prince Hal came into his room, and finding him lying very still and quiet, thought that he was dead. The crown was beside the king's bed, and the prince lifted it, put it on his own head, and went away. But the king was not dead, and when he awoke and found that the crown was gone, he was greatly alarmed. He called to his nobles, who were in a room near. "'Why have you left me alone? Someone has stolen the crown!' The nobles came running to the king. "'The prince was with you, my lord, while you slept,' they said. "'He must have taken the crown.' "'The prince took it,' said the king. "'Go, bring him here.' When he was told that the king was not dead, Prince Hal returned at once. With tears in his eyes he knelt beside his father's bed. "'I never thought to hear you speak again,' he said. And the king replied sadly, Thy wish was father, Henry, to that thought. I stay too long by thee, I weary thee. Dost thou so hunger for my empty chair, That thou wilt needs invest thee with mine honours Before thy hour is ripe? O foolish youth, thou seek'st the greatness That will overwhelm thee. O oh, pardon me, my liege, said Prince Hal, weeping. And the king pardoned and blessed him before he died. How I came by the crown, O oh God, forgive, and grant it may with thee in true peace live. End of chapter 52. Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on July 13, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 53. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. 
Our Island Story by Henrietta Elizabeth Marshall. Chapter fifty three. Henry the Fifth of Monmouth. The Story of the Battle of Agincourt. When Prince Hal came to the throne in fourteen thirteen AD, he gave up all his wild ways and tried to rule as a wise king should. Judge Gascoigne was very much afraid that he would suffer now for having sent the prince to prison. But Henry had a noble mind. He knew that the judge had only done what was right. So after he became king, Henry treated Judge Gascoigne as a friend, and when he gave up his judgeship, it was because he was a very old man. Still be my judge, he said, and if I should ever have a son who does wrong, I hope you will punish him as you did me. Therefore, still bear the balance and the sword. And I do wish your honours may increase till you do live to see a son of mine offend you and obey you as I did. So shall I live to speak my father's words. Happy am I that have a man so bold that dares do justice on my proper son, and no less happy having such a son that would deliver up his greatness so into the hands of justice. Henry came peacefully to the throne, but he had no better right to it than his father had. There were many people who could not forget that, and it was not long before plots were formed. But Henry put down these plots, and then he thought of fighting with France. You remember how Edward III had claimed to be King of France as well as King of England, and how he did indeed conquer a great part of France. But at the end of his reign, and during the reigns of Richard II and Henry IV, all that he had conquered had again been lost. Of the many French lands which had at one time belonged to England, only the town of Calais remained. Henry V made up his mind to try to win back these lands. He thought that if the plots against him became too strong, and he were driven from the throne of England, he could then still be King of France. The eldest son of the King of France was called the Dauphin, just as the eldest son of the King of England is always called the Prince of Wales. At this time the King of France was mad, so the Dauphin ruled. When he heard that Henry V was coming to fight against him, he sent a present of some tennis balls. Tell the English king, he said to his messenger, that he is too young and foolish to claim dukedoms here. It will be better for him to amuse himself at home with these balls. Henry laughed when he received the present and sent back this message. And tell the pleasant prince this mock of his hath turned his balls to gunstones. Henry gathered his army and, landing in France, laid siege to the town of Harfleur. The town held out bravely for a long time, and when at last it fell, the English army was so worn out, so many of them had been killed and wounded, that they were not strong enough to fight any more. Yet Henry did not want to return to England, having only taken one French town. He resolved to march from Harfleur to Calais, and sail home from there. He would show the French that the English were not afraid of them. So the army left Harfleur, and day after day, ragged, hungry, and worn, they marched along the weary way towards Calais. Day after day passed, but no French soldiers ever came in sight till one evening. When they had gone about half the long journey, the enemy appeared. Even then, weary and worn though the English were, 
the French did not think themselves strong enough to attack, and fell back before them. But about forty miles from Calais, Henry found the French army right across his path. If Calais was to be reached, the French must be beaten. And Calais had to be reached, as it was the only way home, and Henry's men were utterly weary and almost starving. On the morning of the battle, Henry rode along the lines, cheering his poor, tired soldiers. He had a gold crown upon his helmet, and the coat which he wore over his armor was embroidered with the leopards of England and the lilies of France, for already he called himself King of France and England. As Henry rode along, he heard one of his nobles say, I would that some of the thousands of warriors who lie idle this day in England were here to aid us. Nay, replied the king, I would not have one man more. If we win, the greater is the glory God gives to us. If we die, the less is the loss to England. When Henry had ridden all along the lines, he got off his horse and took his place among his soldiers, with the royal standard waving over him. The fight began, and a terrible fight it was. It seemed as if it were the story of Cressy and Poitiers all over again. The French had an army ten times greater than that of the English. Many of the English, too, were sick and ill, weary, ragged, and half-fed, and yet they won the battle. When it was over, Henry, riding across the field, met one of the French heralds. "'To whom does the victory belong?' he asked. "'To you, sire,' replied the man. "'Nay,' said the king, "'but to God. We English made not this great slaughter.' "'What fortress is that?' he added. "'For it is fitting that the battle should have a name.' "'That is the castle of Agincourt, sire,' replied the herald. "'Then Agincourt shall this battle be called,' said Henry. "'And by that name we know it.' "'This was one of the greatest battles ever fought between the French and English, "'but although the English won, the army was too worn out to do more, "'and so they went home to England.' But Henry soon gathered another army and returned to France. There was more fighting, till at last, five years later, peace was made, and Henry married Catherine, the daughter of the French king. It was arranged that King Charles, who, you remember, was mad, should keep the title of king while he lived, but that Henry should rule, and that when Charles died Henry should be king of France. But about two years after this, Henry himself died. He was only thirty-four, and had reigned but ten years. He was a wise king and ruled well, yet his great battles are what we hear most of in his reign, and they brought suffering and sorrow to many of his people. Still his people loved him, and their grief at his death was great. Henry V, too famous to live long, England ne'er lost a king of so much worth. England ne'er had a king until his time. Virtue he had deserving to command. His brandished sword did blind men with his beams. His arms spread wider than a dragon's wings. His sparkling eyes replete with wrathful fire more dazzled and drove back his enemies than midday sun, fierce bent against their faces. What should I say? His deeds exceed all speech. He ne'er lift up his hand, but conquered. End of chapter 53 Read by Kara Schallenberg 
www.kray.org, on July 13, 2006, in Oceanside, California. Our Island Story, Chapter 54 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. Chapter 54 Henry IV of Windsor. The Story of the Maid of Orleans. When Henry V died in 1422 A.D., his son, who was also called Henry, was only a tiny baby nine months old. Yet the people had loved Henry V so much that they chose that this tiny baby should be called their king. Of course, a baby nine months old, who could not even speak, could not rule. So his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, ruled instead. Queen Catherine, the baby's mother, married a Welsh gentleman called Owen Tudor, and took no part in ruling the kingdom. For a little time things seemed to go well, but soon troubles began. Charles, the mad king of France, died about two months after the death of Henry V, and the baby Henry VI was proclaimed king of France in his place. "'May God grant long life to Henry, by the grace of God, king of France and England,' cried the heralds. But the Dauphin, Charles, felt that he was the rightful heir, and he too called himself King of France. The baby king, of course, did not know anything about what was happening, but his uncle John, Duke of Bedford, who ruled France for him, was very angry with the Dauphin, and began to fight with him. The English were so strong that at first they defeated the French armies, and the Dauphin was in despair. The Scots had been helping the French. To stop them doing so, the English said that they would set their king free if they would promise not to help the French any more. You remember that King James, when he was a little boy, had been taken prisoner by Henry IV, and he had now been in prison for nineteen years. While in prison, James had seen a beautiful lady from his window as she walked in the garden of the palace. He loved her, although he had never spoken to her nor heard her speak. James was a poet as well as a king, and he wrote some beautiful poetry about her. And therewith cast I down my eyes again, where, as I walking, saw beneath the tower, full secretly, new coming to her play, the fairest and the freshest young flower that ever I saw, methought, before that hour, for which sudden surprise anon did start the blood of all my body to my heart. And when she walked had a little time, under the sweet green branches bent, her fair, fresh face, as white as any snow, she turned it has, and forth her way she went. But then began my sickness and torment, to see her go and follow not I might, methought the day was turned into night. Bewailing in my chamber thus alone, despairing of all joy and remedy, Oft weary of my thoughts, and woe begone, Unto the window would I walk in haste To see the world, and the folk who went forby. As for the time, though I of mirth's food Might have no more, to look it did me good. 
As soon as James was free, he married this beautiful lady and went back to Scotland with her. But before he went, the English made him pay a large sum of money in return for all that had been spent on him while he was in prison. He also promised not to help the French in their battles with the English. So this is why the Scots could no longer fight for the French. But other help came to them. They found a great leader who brought them victory. This great leader was a woman. In a peaceful little village, far away from the sounds of war, lived a peasant girl called Jeanne d'Arc, or as we call her in English, Joan of Arc. She had never been to school. She could neither read nor write. Ever since she had been quite a little girl, she had had to work hard all day long in the fields and in the house. But although she was ignorant, Joan was gentle and good, and her heart was full of love for her country. From time to time stories of battle and loss and death were brought to the little village by sick and wounded soldiers from the battlefields. As Joan listened to these stories, tears filled her eyes, and a great longing grew in her heart to do something for her dear country. She spent long days alone in the fields taking care of her master's sheep. While she watched the sheep, she kept thinking and longing. "'What can I do?' she said to herself. "'I am only a poor, ignorant girl. What can I do for my country?' At last it seemed to her as if the empty air around her was full of voices, which answered her question. It seemed to her that saints and angels came to her, and whispered that she was chosen to free France. "'Put on the courage and the armor of a man,' said the voices, "'and lead the armies to victory.' When Joan told people that God had chosen her as captain, they thought at first that she was mad. But she was so earnest and so sure, that at last they took her to the Dauphin. Dressed like a man in shining white armor, riding upon a beautiful white horse, and carrying a white banner sewed with the gold lilies of France, she looked so beautiful and so good that the Dauphin and the soldiers could not but believe in her. So this peasant girl, who knew nothing of war, who had never before worn armor, nor carried a sword, nor ridden upon a horse, took command of the army. The rough soldiers honored, obeyed, and almost worshipped her. New hope sprang up in their hearts, new strength to fight. So full of courage were they now, that in less than a week fortune changed, the English began to lose, and the French to win. Joan's first fighting was at Orleans, which had been besieged by the English for some months. Joan beat the English and drove them away, and because of that she was afterwards often called the Maid of Orleans. Battle after battle was fought, town after town was taken from the English, until about two months from the time Joan began to fight, the French were so completely victorious that the Dauphin was crowned at Rheims. It was a very splendid sight. The church was crowded with knights and nobles and rejoicing people, but no one rejoiced more than the Maid of Orleans. Dressed still in her beautiful white armor, Holding her white banner in her hand, she stood beside the Dauphin as the crown was placed upon his head, and he was proclaimed King of France, instead of the little English King Henry the Sixth. Then, when all was over, Joan begged to be allowed to go home again, to tend sheep once more, and to be with her brothers and her sisters. 
"'They would be so glad to see me,' she said. "'My work here is done.' "'But the king would not let her go. "'The English still remained in the country, "'and fighting still went on, "'so Joan, as she was not allowed to go home, "'went on fighting too. "'But one sad day, during a battle, "'she was wounded, "'and taken prisoner by the English. "'The English were very glad of this, "'because they thought that she was a witch.' In those days people still believed in witches, and were very much afraid of them. The English thought that no one who was not a witch could have done the wonderful things Joan had done. After being kept in prison for nearly a year, Joan, young, beautiful, and good though she was, was burned as a witch, because she had freed her country. The English did not do this wicked deed, but, what was almost as bad, they allowed their friends— the Burgundians, who were French, but who had been fighting on the English side, to do it. After this the English proclaimed Henry the Sixth King of France at Paris, but it was only an empty show, for he was not really King of France. Fighting still went on, but the English lost more and more, till at last they had lost all the lands they had ever held in France. In 1451 A.D. only the town of Calais remained to them, and the Hundred Years' War, begun by Edward III in 1340 A.D., came to an end. While these things were happening in France, the baby king of England was growing up to be a man. And a very weak man he grew to be. He was pulled this way and that among his many advisers who ruled the country and quarrelled among themselves. The lords made the king marry a French lady called Margaret of Anjou, she was very strong-willed, and it was really she, more than King Henry, who ruled. The country was in a very unhappy state. The long wars with France had cost a great deal of money and a great many lives. The people were heavily taxed in order to pay for the wars. The men who were taken away for soldiers very often never came home again. There were not enough people in the country to do the work, and famine and disease and all kinds of misery followed. At last the people rebelled, just as they had rebelled in the time of Richard II, under Watt Tyler. This time their leader was called Jack Cade. It all happened very much as before. The rebels marched to London and camped upon Blackheath. A battle was fought in which the king's men were defeated. Then Jack Cade and his followers were promised what they asked. Many of them afterwards went home quietly, but Jack Cade himself was killed. This rising lasted only a few weeks, but another struggle which lasted thirty years soon began. This struggle was called the Wars of the Roses. End of chapter 54 This is the end of the first half of Our Island Story by H. E. Marshall. To listen to the second half, please visit the catalog page at LibriVox.org. Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on July 13, 2006, in Oceanside, California.